Warning, this program typically features respectful, nuanced, and well-informed commentary, strong language, obscure pop culture references, and spurious allegations. We know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Greetings and welcome back to another exciting installment of the Fifth Column Podcast. This is your weekly rhetorical assault on the news cycle to people that make it and occasionally ourselves. I am Camille Foster. I do things at Freethink and today I'm delighted to be here on, on the Fifth Column. Not today, tonight, we always record at night and by we I'm referring to Matt Welch, Breeze Magazine, Michael Moynihan of Vice News mm-hmm. and here we are. All of you should just you should just call me low energy Jeb. <laughs> low energy. <laughs> Camille accused me of being low energy before I, we started. I feel like which is I feel true. Like we were it's all a little, a little low energy, low but it, it may be because the week has been it's been a long week already. Long week. Um, yeah. There's a, a tremendous amount going on. The, the situation in Ukraine continues to deteriorate. Go on. A Russian flagship was sunk, which is kind of incredible. NATO expansion seems to be continuing apace, or at least the possibility of it continues, as do fast threats of various kinds of nuclear things. Mm. A heinous attack um, in Sunset Park, an area that we all have some familiarity with, which we're all tracking pretty closely. But today we found out what the real threat to democracy and the future (laughs) of freedom in America is. It's all tied together. And it is the possibility of Elon Musk purchasing twitter mm-hmm. first elon decided you know what i'm about nine percent of this motherfucker i'm just going to become the largest shareholder in twitter we thought he might be joining the board uh, on monday of this week the t- ceo of twitter posted something to the mm-hmm. interwebs saying he's not joining the board and this morning when i woke up i discovered that elon musk had sent a memo to the folks at twitter uh, along with i guess some sort of a, a written statement but along with a voice memo um <laughs> indicating that he planned to buy twitter and and also explaining that this was his best and final offer, as if this were, you know, regular ass real estate transaction yeah. for that uh, single family home down the block um, and not a multi-billion dollar company. Um, and, um, yeah. and what has happened in response to that is complete pandemonium. If you think people freaked out for the 9%, yeah. the 9%, that's some people freaked out about that. And then I saw that this morning too, and I opened up Twitter and I was like, oh, this is going to be good. Bunch of complete <laughs> fucking losers are going to be losing their minds. And you know what I have to say? One in particular, yeah. um, you know, I just wanted to kind of set the scene for people because outside my house, there are clashes going on between people on Twitter and people from Gab and Truth and other, they're fighting in the streets. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think a couple people have been shot. There's yeah, been some yeah. martyrs. There's a book burning. It's different, like, yeah, uniforms. Yeah, there's a like book a, burning like down colors. the street and they're burning <laughs> yeah. uh, tweets. Uh, I don't know how they're doing it, but they're burning them publicly. They're marching. Uh, they're singing songs. And I think it's just going to be really bad because it does feel like the last days of the Weimar Republic because, uh, you know, the murders and the Holocaust to come, the dictatorship that's coming, the arrests that are forthcoming. Um you know, I mean, that, that, that's kind of what I felt when I, I saw that news. I was like, fuck, I know what it feels like to be a Jewish yeah. person in Germany on January, say, yeah. 25th, 1933. It's just right around the corner yeah. and everything is falling apart. It's the same. Yeah. And it's if you don't know what I'm yeah, referring to, same energy. it is the greatest uh, person on Twitter who, by the way, is increasingly reminding me of the, um, the uh, meme of um, what's his name? Uh, from from Arrested Development, like how's it going, fellow youths or whatever that is, you know? It, he's like he's like an old guy <laughs> pretending to be cool. Like he's got like a band shirt on. He's like, yeah, hey, I'm hip with it because since Jeff Jarvis, who was once a semi-serious person, 
uh, has been on Twitter. He has just really been trying to keep up with the uh, kind of woke Joneses and uh, embarrasses himself uh, every every day. I don't know if anyone has the tweet handy and wants to read it, but uh, J- Jeff Jarvis' tweet you much... uh, was, was, was this. I mean, it would definitely not hyperbolic at all. This is what he said, according to Matt Welch reading it, live reading. Today on Twitter feels like the last evening in a Berlin nightclub yep. at the twilight of Weimar, Germany. Yeah. Um, so I, Somebody's I, been I mean, watching, uh, w- were we even having a good cabaret? Yeah. He's the cabaret artist. Were, were, were the races yes. mixing? Was it like we were having one last uh, <laughs> yeah. go round? I don't we're going to have a boycott understand. against what? Jewish businesses. I'm sorry. Um, Twitter businesses in April. Uh, then we're going to pass some race laws uh, a few a few years later. Um, all this is leading up to a world war that we're going to launch uh, and a Holocaust um, and lots of other people that were killed, too. Um, it kind of exactly the same thing, don't you think? What's interesting <laughs> sort of feels uh, like maybe it's not the same thing. It just feels that way. It's like it's a competitive, idiotic yeah. takes. You knew because this news came at like, what, 530, yeah. 550 in the morning when it first got reported. It's like, all right. All right, gentlemen, man your take stations. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and that there'd be this a sense of competition to go through. And we've watched this uh, over the years. I mean, since AOL, yeah. um, you know, bought <laughs> Time right. Warner and sank the entire democracy back then, which was a very common reaction from the Norman Solomon. I, I am world. doing this on uh, Internet Explorer right now, too, because it's the only browser yeah. left <laughs> in the universe. Because... Uh, and, uh, and the thing about Jeff Jarvis who, again, is someone who uh, I've been friendly with over the years, and you sit and you watch this kind of descend into whatever it is now. Um, he, for years, was the guy, the guy. You can just uh, Google the search. Uh, Google the search. <laughs> uh, Google the, you about the terms. You about as much about the internet as Jeff Jarvis does. <laughs> uh, less, considerably less. I didn't uh, write a book Google about Google. Um, he was always the guy about, like, you know, um, after 9-11, he had a nation cover story saying, fuck the FCC, like no government control. And uh, so Google the search term, uh, death of gatekeepers, and you're going to see a lot of Jeff Jarvis out there. Like He celebrated in the early days of the Internet and the, the second early days and the, even the third early days. Um, he celebrated how the the democratization of media allowed for routing around <laughs> the gatekeepers. Um, and then now it's. Like, well, that's fine until a bad guy comes Wait, so along. Matt, you're saying that mm-hmm. he was have... once a Nazi? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not making that assertion at this time. I mean, time. look, no, it's, people it's... who don't want gatekeepers are not. They're just like Nazis. So, you know, it's flipped. crazy. I mean, Robert Reich was. was you mean I Robert Third Reich? This. Robert Third Reich <laughs> was. Uh, like five, six days ago saying, yep, this is the classic authoritarian move, just like China and Putin's mm-hmm. Russia is Elon Musk buying yeah, like cool. 9% right, of cool. Twitter. Yeah. It's like, that, no, how, China. how is Elon Max pretty good? How is Max Boot, former conservative turned, I don't know exactly how we describe him at, at the moment, but he works for the Washington Post, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, that's how you get a job. Washington, Washington Post, Post. Was, was purchased by Jeff Bezos, yeah. um, who was the former richest man yeah. okay. on earth. Um, and That's cool. Max Boot's tweet this morning, <laughs> I'm frightened by the impact on society oh, and politics if Elon Musk acquires Twitter. He seems to believe frightened. that on social media, anything goes. For democracy to survive, we need more content moderation. Yeah. Not less. That's by the way. That's how most democracies die: <laughs> is having more government intervention 
And is that? I'm sorry. For do I have democracy it to survive. To, oh, so to survive. So we need more content. The moderation, more the government gets involved, the more democratic it is. <laughs> okay. All right. In fairness, he has advocated for the government to, for example, ha- uh, have the FCC. Uh, go after and prosecute Fox News sure. uh, in order to prevent another January 6th or else next time it's going to be a, a complete plot against America. Yeah. That's, a, right. that's a direct yeah. quote. Uh, and <laughs> my Philip favorite Roth from him from, tw- <laughs> from 2016 uh, in the, on the run-up to the election uh, when he was describing why he's no longer uh, a Republican, uh, he said, um, I think this is directly from Moynihan, I would sooner vote for Joseph Stalin than I would vote for Donald Trump. Uh, you said that? I was I was going to You said that seriously? I was going to jokingly Wait, I was going to jokingly say that you said next that? Boot, no not not a conservative. He's you now a Stalinist? Said, a former conservative turned authoritarian. Oh my god. Jeff Jarvis used to be it's a Nazi. A joke, Max Boots a Stalinist. <laughs> what the fuck? Active Stalinist. I I would sooner vote for Joseph Stalin than I would vote for yeah, Donald Trump. A couple Trump. of points about that. There First of all, Joseph, <laughs> Joseph Stalin didn't allow any voting, you dickhead. Uh, number two, uh, a lot of millions of murders. A lot of millions of murders. Oh, oh my God, the millions so of murdering. murdering. Yeah, yeah, purge trials and all that sort of thing. Wow, that's amazing. But you know, it's funny that nobody ever in these um, you know hot take environments ever has to you know, prove the causal relationship between watching Fox News and a revolution or anything. They just presume that it's true, right? And you definitely know that having this stuff out there is creating violent psychopaths. Uh, In the same time, when there is a guy um, shooting up a subway station, uh, not a big Fox News fan, but I'm wondering, you know, look at some of the, I mean, he had a, like, was a subscriber to some group or liked some group uh, with Angela Davis. Uh, It was an Angela Davis group, somebody who was uh, on the FBI's most wanted list for involvement of a killing of a judge. I don't know, maybe, should we ban that too? I mean, what, what kind of bans should we have and how does one manage those bans? Because we need to find these causal relationships between when somebody does something, Right. And they're an adherent of an ideology. It must be the people who are the loudest kind of most popular voice in expressing that ideology, whether it's Fox News or something. I don't know. Is there I mean, usually you have some clip that somebody plays. And you have the ex post facto thing of like Tucker saying, you know, this is uh, the Patriot Purge, uh, which I can't I want to make fun of, but I can't because I haven't seen it. But um, but that kind of thing after the fact. Um, that that's all I can tell. I mean, but I guess it's just you've created an environment, and so therefore you should be taken off the air by the government or fined. Nothing, no bad precedent there whatsoever. I can't imagine anyone abusing that. I mean, the, the it's a revealing moment, and one of the reasons why it's worth talking about, even at the front of of this program, because um, this is only day one. Uh, of the real, like, serious Musk derangement that's, uh, you know, that people were getting started before. There was an incredibly bad op-ed from the former Reddit CEO, um, uh, Ellen Powell, I believe her name is, uh, in the Washington Post about five days ago saying that, you know, this is this is bad. We're going to, we're going to, you know, th- this shows that we need regulation of social media platforms to prevent rich people from controlling our channel of communications because without this regulation, <laughs> uh, uh, the people harmed will disproportionately be those who have been harmed for centuries, women and members of marginalized racial and ethnic what? groups. You got to get that in there. The people how who much, benefit from... How much from is she un- worth? Yeah. <laughs> uh, unrestricted <laughs> amplification of their views will also be the same people who have benefited from that privilege for centuries. So that's why we need to have... 
But I mean, they saved the, America the, the, by banning the Chapo Trap House subreddit. So, I mean, had that not have happened, I think the terrorist attack on the N train would have been a lot time, a lot worse. I think it would have been 10 times worse. I mean, if that Reddit's is it worth fucking people? Is it worth reminding people that Twitter didn't exist 20 years yeah. ago? Like if 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 how did the what, 9-11 hijack if democracy hangs in the balance based on uh, who is the dominant shareholder or not of Twitter? What did we do? Uh, in 2001. I just don't remember. I don't know how those, those, those uh, plotters actually managed to get the ideas to blow up the World Trade Center if there wasn't uh, Twitter. You know, where, how do, where are those ideas coming from and can we stop the ideas? <laughs> can we just stop them at the root? This is uh, a salon.com, the, one of the greatest publications on the internet, um, which I barely remembered existed. Uh, this is pretty good. Um, well, actually, it's a two-parter. I mean, he does it uh, uh, twice, but I'll just read the first one because it's a similar, uh, similar sentiment. If Elon Musk allows Trump back on Twitter, it will be a death blow to the free world. Okay. Wow. Um, <laughs> that's, that's, I discussed the danger of Trump's big lie for Salon. I'm sure it was a, a cracking piece. Yeah. Like Hitler's big lie. It must not be normalized, lest fascism return. <laughs> um, and as I like to point out, that they misunderstand Hitler's big lie, which is an accusation against the Jews lying, not saying this is what one should do. But you know, why quote the source material? And, and doesn't, no, matter. doesn't matter. But doesn't um, matter. It, it, yeah. it, this is the one after that. I stand by the un, uh, underlying sentiment: Elon Musk's attempted takeover of Twitter is a threat to the free world. <laughs> You people are what? mentally deranged. Like, seriously, g- walk away from the fucking computer. Like, how ma- what percentage of people are on Twitter? What percentage of journalists? No, no, just Americans. <laughs> oh, no, it's... Yeah, people. I mean, this is the, the... We're coming into the sacred temple the, of journalism. This is the watering yeah. hole. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, according to um, a great uh, Pew Research Center poll... Um, from October of 2020, so you know it's it's developed since then, but not a whole lot because uh, the uh, usage of Twitter is kind of flatlined along with Facebook in America. Um, finds that 10 percent. This isn't an overall like uh, population count, but among Twitter users, uh, just 10 percent of users produced 92 percent of all mm-hmm. tweets. So that's a start. Um, and 69 percent of these highly prolific users identify as Democrats or Democratic-leading mm-hmm. independents. So this is a place where journalists like to go, um, mm-hmm. where they have successfully, over the last three, four, five years, kind of mow-mowed Jack Dorsey and Twitter and saying, hey, look, you know, democracy hangs in the balance. That's why you have to ban Milo Yiannopoulos and the New York Post if they do the Hunter Biden story and whatever. Um, so they have created a place... Um, because I think Twitter is in some uh, ways like almost all large everything store or, or like successful social media platforms that are so big that everyone uses them. They then, after they cross a certain threshold, become uh, that just spend, have to spend all their time like dealing with everybody's desire to censor their opponents. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it's, I think, inarguable that Democrats who dominate the platform have also pre had a preponderance of success in Mau Mauing Twitter to write rules that were favorable to them. And so what is the difference? What is Elon going to do? Some people will say, well, he's going to use this to try to game the system to boost his share price, at least come up with a rich guy evil uh, thing. And that's the richest fine. guy Put in the world over there is, in the not, corner. is not um, 
in need of boosting his share price. I mean, he is literally the richest man in the world. Um, it's kind of the richest you know, man in the world. But but like the actual, the real root thing, and people are, are quoted at length about it, um, what they're uh, terrified of is exactly that, that Donald Trump will come back, that the filters will be taken away. So you're seeing journalists and people who fashion themselves as are used to uh, uh, free speech champions are sitting there terrified, saying that the republic will fall if we lift content moderation, they are absolutely telling on themselves every day, every minute, every second. They are telling on themselves right now. And it's thrilling. It's thrilling to watch. Yeah, I mean, they were champions of free speech in the past because there were no such platforms, right? I mean, you can be champions of free speech when you control all the levers of power and, you know, most, not all, but most of the media outlets, you know, I mean, that's the, you know, go back 20 years. 25 years or something and it's you know when you have cable news and before the advent of fox news and then you have the three major channels and the new york times etc and then there's just some sort of journals like you know in the 1990s the american spectator actually made an impact but it was like a tiny journal that became pretty big for a little bit because they were doing the the digging of dirt on the clintons and that just wasn't happening in the mainstream media as much but it is it is really really strange that that these people don't realize that they're showing their hand they're showing their hand in the sense that if you don't believe that there is a political slant to journalism, just look at the responses to this. I mean, you don't see any mainstream journalists defending it and saying, I think it is going to be a good thing. I haven't seen that once today. Like, I mean, just nonpartisan journalists, people of the left, people, you know, who don't really wear their politics in their sleeves because they're, because they're reporters or something like that. And they might say, hey, it's not that bad. And it's not that they don't think it. It's that they understand the environment doesn't allow them to say it. And if they did say it, they would be on the other end of a really, really bad pylon from the people who are you know, nominally on their own side or in their same profession. Not a lot of people are going yeah, out and saying, to, you know, this is not the end of the world. But it you has don't to be professional to... contrarians or, I mean, uh, to like, <laughs> people who are called contrarians. That's what I mean, Camille. Don't jump on me. Uh, but like the, you're uh, welcome. Yeah. The, uh, the kind of uh, Matt Iglesias, Josh Barrow, kind of the norm core, or Ben Dreyfus, our friend, um, the norm core kind of uh, center left guys who make their living by saying super obvious things. But it, it, it comes out brave coming out of their mouth uh, because so many people won't say them. So, it's the new, like, it's the new Republic not... from the 1990s, basically. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Here's a challenge that I'm having. I don't know how to steel man this concern on the part of some journalists on Twitter. I, I don't even know where to begin the argument. I'm not certain what their expectation is. How, how exactly would the unwinding of democracy be precipitated by Elon Musk. It's all about Donald Trump taking over Twitter. Donald Trump coming back. So Donald Trump gets on yes. Twitter and is able to like okay. Americans had no real concerns. That is fake. I'm going to give you the narrative. Uh-huh. You know, the kind of forgotten man narrative that has been prominent on the right to explain Donald Trump isn't real. The only way he mm-hmm. became president was goading, you know, racial minorities, stoking, you know, all of our sort of subterranean hatreds. And he was successful because we put him on MSNBC every day, cut into broadcast to put him on. And because he had free air enormous, time, um, you know, platform on Twitter. And every time he tweeted, it was broadcast. I mean, th- th- you know, the mainstream media who is denouncing this are the handmaidens, even if you believe that this is true. And it is absolutely not true. But if you believe that to be true... All one has to do is ignore 
every little sneeze that during the campaign, it's very hard to do that when he's the president, that Donald Trump puts up on Twitter because they knew it was good for ratings and they knew that people liked it and they were responding to the market. But yeah, the, the idea is that, you know, with another election coming up, right, we got him off the last election and then we stopped the Hunter Biden story. And then, you know, they keep this is the, they see Twitter as much more valuable mm-hmm. and influential than it actually is. And they're constantly trying to intervene to make sure that it's benefiting their side. Imagine the thought after believing that, you know, preventing the Hunter Biden laptop story was a good thing. It was not. It's insane to actually think back on it. Um, it's particularly with some of the revelations that you, you've seen. We're getting no play either. Um, you know, th- getting Trump off Twitter, they believe that that was instrumental in uh, making sure that he didn't win again. Imagine the thought process for these people and say, oh, my God, this billionaire is going to come in who's done all this great things, great stuff for mankind, and he's going to undo it all by letting, letting Donald Trump on the platform. And pr- when he's on the platform, he's going to be normalized and he's going to win again. And it's basically it. I mean, in the max, but- in the max boot of, of POV, which is shared by some people, is that January 6th was the dress rehearsal. That next time sure. we're going to do full authoritarianism, fascism, whatever. It's a long way to go to apologize um, for Iraq and make sure that people like you again. <laughs> Did he actually ever apologize? No, but he makes you forget question. about it by I don't, being I don't on know your side has. all of a sudden, right? I was, I was looking at, uh, I just I was Googling my name and Max Boot on the uh, Reason site because I remember, uh, <laughs> I mean, if you haven't sampled his post, immediately post 9-11 writing for the Weekly Standard, it's astonishing. It is like just crazy balls. Not, It's basically World War Four. Norman Pothovitz had the single weirdest and craziest essay um, uh, it, that was called World War Four, I think, in commentary. But uh, m- what Boot was cranking out in 2001 and two was out there. And I didn't really uh, link to those things at the time, but one thing that I uh, saw was a proposal in 2005. He was already realizing that his sort of ideas about an American empire, and I'm not using that in the usual anti-interventionist stuff. I'm using it the way that he used it, because he was like, yeah, empire is awesome, especially if we're in the middle of it. Um, but he's like, yeah, we're, we're kind of running out of soldiers. So what we should do is um, every foreigner in the world who agrees to fight in our wars gets automatic citizenship just as long as they, I mean, he was just going full like Roman Empire shit. Like, let's just do that right now. Hey, you over there, you going to fight for us for two years? Awesome. You're in the art. We'll do it like the French Foreign Legion and you'll become a citizen um, after you uh, serve a, a tour or two in Iraq. Um, he's been doing this for years. And, and, and ends up at the know, Washington Post. Is, it shows you the standards that the media and, has and why people hate the media. I mean, it's it's not as if Max Boot backs away from this stuff and tries to remake himself. And it's so transparent that we all just kind of chuckle and see that he started, you know, some, you know, blog spot or medium or something like that. And then we just kind of forget about him. No, no, they go yeah, he's, on to... He's never been unemployed. No. He was at the LA Times when I was there. Um, what's funny now is that, so Max Boot is, is like the classic neocon turned whatever he is now. Um, uh, and like a lot of neocons, he's sort of made his peace now with the left because he's uh, so appalled by Trump. But another class of people on the right kind of agree with him, minus some of the histrionics. And that's our tradcon friends, yeah. right? The the Trumpian or post-Trumpian populists, We're like, yeah, you know what? Um, these things it should be a public utility. Mm-hmm. It should be a public utility regulated for the common good. Um, but in the absence of that, then you know we don't care so much. That's what Adrian Vermeule uh, uh, tweeted out just today. Um, that is a pretty common thing on the right, and it's just it makes sense because 
when you have a uh, a populist idea about governance and and even the constitution to the extent that you care about that anymore populism means government is a stick and principles are a stick and you use it to beat people um and that's what people want and so uh, the public utility model is like I will be in charge of the utility and I will use this in ways that's favorable to my clan and disfavorable against those people. And once again, in a populist moment, it's the people who are not like that, uh, who are not like uh, looking for that opportunity, who feel a bit lonely, but also we're laughing a lot. Mm. Um, it's pretty funny right now because people are tying themselves absolutely up in knots, uh, going crazy and furious. Um, uh, and not getting what they want. And I think Musk is trolling them just a little yeah, bit. Yeah, and I mean, look, I mean, the short-term thing from people like Max Boot is a short-term political goal. We can't have this because the bad people will get onto these um, platforms. And people like Max Boot effectively don't like Americans and have a, have a distrust of them and don't think they're capable of actually processing this stuff. And uh, provided we keep it away from them, they'll either not vote or maybe make the right decision in their mind. Whereas the kind of TradCon thing is less about Americans, but more about America. And they, they don't like what America's become. And they, they're not fans of the country. And they're not fans of the country because they think it's, you know, loose and licentious. And, you know, uh, there's drag, what is it, drag queen story hours uh, everywhere you go. You mm. go to get, you know, corn mm. at the farm and it's sold to you by a drag queen. It's just going crazy. And they have that kind of vision and it's not something that was exclusively kind of trad cons and i don't know if he's in this i mean he's not a real human anymore he's a fake uh joker which is dinesh d'souza d'souza wrote a book after 9-11 kind of sympathizing with the terrorists and said yeah. you know they, they had, had a point. point um we are uh decadent we are and, and this this kind of thing exists on the right in a way that it's always been very dispiriting to actually watch these people that periodically could do some good work. Um, I'm not talking about D'Souza, although he was interesting for like a moment in the 90s when he wrote that book at the end of racism and it was treated seriously and reviewed in the New York Review of Books and I think given a not even a bad review and then he decided that there was no business in that. It, you know, the bank account was going to be fattened by doing the performance that he does now. But that kind of thing is 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 odd that these people that there's so many people that just are have a distaste for America, whether it's the, the American citizens, whether you know it's American voters, or it's the American experiment and where it's gone, and or you know, and on, on the kind of left side of the ledger, that people that think that the American idea is wrong from the get-go, from its you know origin in not 1776, from 1619. Let's back it up 150 years and say. Yeah, yeah, it's bad from from the start, and it can never get better. It's our original sin. And there's all these people who just really don't like the world in which they inhabit. And I feel very differently. Um, there's a lot of bad things and a lot of things that can be corrected. But, you know, <laughs> I'm just I'm not somebody who's that negative about this country at this point. The, I mean, the guy to bring us together, obviously, is bro... Uh, is he a security camera bro or bodega bro who uh, uh, ID'd the uh, subway shooter? Maybe. The, uh, 21-year-old kids, Zach. Uh, I mean, he's going to get milkshake ducked any second now, but like yeah. uh, 
Uh, he, <laughs> I mean, but didn't the dude call himself like, in and he's like, I'm in the East Village at a McDonald's? He did call himself in, but he did. But the guy I did, think it, it uh, happened around the same time. Like, he spots him, unbeknownst to him, the police already know where the guy is and are coming for him. But, but the kid, he also saw him and was tracking his movements reportedly. It may turn out that it's completely fake and he didn't actually have anything to do with I it. I believe but in I him because know. I believe in yeah. America. Communal. I want to I uh, believe in him. People. It's a feel good story. Yeah. Syrian immigrants who comes to America and saves the day and stops the mass shooter who couldn't be found for about a day, which is which was weird. It was very that was really weird for something like that to happen. But before we transition to that, I want to ask one more question about the Twitter situation. Bezos, he goes off, he buys the Washington Post, storied media outlet. Nobody really cares. In fact, Bezos kind of revolutionized the Post in the sense that it became this service provider to other media organizations. This perennial money loser found itself in a position to actually be a bit of a tech platform for other newspapers. Great. Amazing. And Jeff, very hands-off with the Washington Post. If Jeff was meddling with the Post, dictating its editorial output, we would probably know about it. On the other hand, Elon decides he's going to buy what is, in effect, the water cooler for the American journalism establishment. But Twitter is also a global platform. It doesn't only matter here in the United States, which makes complaints about American democracy dying a little bit weird. But it's odd that journalists don't recognize that they could just go somewhere else if it turns out Twitter is crummy after Elon gets his grubby paws on it. They could just leave. In fact, if Elon does take steps that turn Twitter into a cesspool beyond the concerns about Donald Trump more broadly, it would probably be very bad for Twitter's bottom line, which, if I'm not mistaken, they still managed to lose money the past two years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah. And they're sta- going to stand to lose a lot more money now um, when they walk into this trap because Elon Musk has nine point some odd percent of Twitter's overall shares and said that he wants nothing to do with it if he can't own it, which means he's going to dump nine point some odd percent of his shares and watch the stock price go into the toilet. Absolutely. And it's it's uh, hilarious. I mean, it's like it's like the cruelest way of trolling and making all these people lose money. But, you know, he has the power power to do that. I mean, look, the thing about Musk, which you have to remember in all this is, you know, we talked about this in the Patreon. Somebody wrote us a message that was probably one of the better messages we've ever received. Um, It was kind of a soliloquy for Elon the liberal and all these great liberal things that he's done and why he's a liberal hero. Yeah. And how that kind of, you know, disappears. Why? Well, I think it's pretty simple. It's you really have to have 100% into the cult. And if you don't, if you start deviating you know, wait a second, there's a, there's a kind of Scientology aspect to it. If you start, if you have one kind of bum view, one errant view, you become very suspicious to people. And people say, oh, did you know that person's a Republican? Do you know that person's like a right winger? Like he's not done anything that I find particularly odd or particularly ideological. I mean, being on the side of free speech seems to be fairly basic to me. But that is enough in, because this is another example of how you cannot deny that these institutions are, you know, a kind of monoculture of politics. Because I could, I could list for you 20 people who are, you know, 9-11 truthers that are big celebrities. Nothing, no one ever mm-hmm. says that, even knows about it. You know, David Mamet goes on to Fox News and says something completely batshit crazy about, you know, pedophile teachers or something. And he's been crazy for a while. 
And he's just kind of been ignored or written out or, you know, called this kind of crackpot MAGA guy. And all these people are like, oh, these MAGA guy, I can't even, I can't even believe I loved Glengarry Glen Ross. That was a mammoth play, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I just want to make sure I wasn't fucking that up. And now I can't watch it anymore, et cetera. And I'm like, you know, speaking of crazy views, I mean, the number of people who are celebrities, like, you know, really famous people who went out there and said that 9-11 was an inside job. It never had any effect on anyone. Really didn't. It was kind of a little joke at some point, but it never really affected people's people's standing in the industry. Having one bad idea, and Elon doesn't even have one bad idea that I can tell. He's just kind of a, a weirdo troll who, you know, thinks there should be more free speech on Twitter. And that means... Because, by the way, this is, this is another thing is this is exactly why people think FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights and Education, is a right wing group. It is absolutely not. It will defend anyone. But, not at all. But the yeah. majority of these things. I'm, I'm very biased, though. Yeah, you yeah. are biased. <laughs> that reveal your, your connection. But the, the majority of these cases on college campuses, you know, are, you know, conservative students, teachers. It has been traditionally. I don't know if it's the same thing now. So it makes you think that that is what's happening. Now, if you if you look at, you know, Elon, I, I mean, good Lord, what you just assume that he's going to, you know, because the cases are Babylon B, right? Hunter's laptop, mm-hmm. Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're all coming from one direction. So when you say, I think we should have, Alex, Alex Jones, Alex Berenson. Alex Berenson, Alex Jones, you know, these a lot of people who I think are fucking insane and disagree with. But it's all coming from one direction. So if Kirk, you're defending Charlie free speech, Kirk lost his account. As Charlie well. Kirk did. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. But when the, when the yeah, censoring is, is hitting one group, you tend to look like somebody who's in that group rather than being somebody who's saying, look, I just want more free speech in the platform. I think it's better for the town square, for the debate, blah, blah, blah. You know, the drill. But I don't get the sense that Elon Musk is some fire-breathing right-winger. It's just that he wants free speech uh, to, to blossom, and that means not you know, shutting down the New York Post for publishing a story that was true. Well, another aspect of his record, and I think he just sort of comes off as a weirdo and a tech bro in ways that people don't like tech bros. Also true, yeah. They might have their... Which is, which is weird, and... actually. When I hear him talk in other contexts, he doesn't seem that way. He seems curious it feels like the water you're and interesting. In, Camille. It, maybe, but I mean, I sat down and watched him do this TED one-on-one interview today, cool. yeah, and great, cool. it was it was endearing. <laughs> like it's endearing when he talks about his autism, when he talks about the meaning of life and the universe, and I don't understand palpable fear on the part of some journalists. Why do these hate people hate people with disabilities so much? <laughs> Maybe it's One because aspect. he's African. Yeah, an African American. He's an African American. That's why they hate him. Disability. Apartheid <laughs> diamond merchant. Yeah. One aspect of it that's been brought up by quite a few people is that he has famously spent a long time battling the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, mm-hmm. which doesn't like the way he talks about things that potentially affect the share price of the companies right. that he's involved with. He's paid yeah. millions of dollars with the fines over the years. And people cite this as a reason why it's alarming that he'd be in in charge of Twitter. I find that kind of interesting because SEC rules about what people can and cannot say 
are and have been for a long time one of the most onerous actual restrictions on speech in America. Now, it's it's because you're, you took your company public. So when you take your company public, you're obviously going to be subject to rules that I will never be subject to because I don't have a company that I've taken public. So you understand that there's going to be trade-offs involved with all that. That said, it's a weird look for a bunch of journalists and journalists and professors who are in all of these articles bemoaning it like there's a Vox piece from earlier this week, like Elon Musk is no champion of free speech. Um, <laughs> and it has all these Why not? academics in there. What was the argument? Um, well, because he's rich and he's just a rich person who is now <laughs> amplifying his voice um, in a way. And he's doing it because he might want to affect his share price. What is um, how stupid saying, are these fucking 25 year olds who write this shit? They come out of Columbia Journalism School. <laughs> all of them, by the way, this is a game that I play with a friend of mine who lives in L.A. And every time we read a dumb fucking piece online, we go find their LinkedIn. And invariably, it is somebody who just graduated from Columbia Journalism School. I don't know what the fuck they're teaching them there. But it's, you know, a, a moron factory. But this thing that, like, he, you know, <laughs> he's trying to do this and he's trying to do that. That's why he's interceding in Twitter. It's like, you understand that any person you walk by today, any person you walk by tomorrow, any person your friend in China walks by tomorrow, is not as rich as Elon Musk. He is literally the richest person in the world. This is kind of hard to wrap your head around. He is the rich. He can do whatever he wants, right? I mean, not whatever he wants. He can buy whatever he wants. He, can, he, could, he could poach everybody who worked at Twitter by doubling, tripling, quadrupling their salaries and starting his own little platform, and Elon's doing it. It would work. It's not Donald Trump doing it. He paid the most money in taxes last year of any human being ever in history, in, history in any yeah. regime. And it's still not to, enough. Like he, it's not his no, fair it's not share. share. It's not his fair share. Yeah. He made a lot of money. You should pay. You should pay even more. Um, I, I'm I'm curious about something. Did you guys see Jack's tweet from earlier in this month where he tweeted about? Um, uh, actually, let me find it. I think there's I, only one person named Jack. So it's the Jack days Schaefer. of Usenet, IRC, the web, <laughs> even even email with PGP were amazing. Centralizing discovery and identity into corporations really damaged the internet. I realize I'm partly to blame and regret it. Did you guys see that? Well, it's always good to regret no. it after you've made your money and stepped away from CEO of the company. <laughs> I mean, everyone finds out then. It's like becoming a f- member of the French resistance times, in 1946. It's like, yeah, well, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm curious about ever. a couple of things. One, there was that piece in The Atlantic by John Haidt um, that, that got a lot of attention this week. Uh, I believe the title of it was something along the lines of America has become much stupider in the last 10 years and social media is the reason why. Something to that effect. If that's not the title, mm-hmm. that was the premise of the article. Um, and I'm wondering about both the proposition that Elon is somehow saving democracy and free speech by purchasing Twitter, and the degree to which that is overstatement, and the concern in general about the role of social media somehow undermining democracy, which also seems to be a part of the concern on the part of the Max Boots of the world who are worried that there is insufficient censorship on these platforms because they steal some of the monopoly on speech that incumbent media institutions have been able to wield for a Imagine very long time. Imagine being that smart, you know, or, or nominally that smart or, you know, get jobs in places where smart people get hired. And to fall victim to a political campaign to exonerate your shitty candidate. That's where all this comes from. I mean, think think back, right? 
Misinformation, disinformation was not a thing people were talking about in 2014. They were talking about it after Hmm. Hillary Clinton lost. It was something that was literally ginned up. Fake news, of course, coming coming from the Hillary side. Ginned up to explain how this, you know, American political royalty had lost to this rube. And you need an explanation. Otherwise, you look like a dummy. And you say, well, they cheated. That's what Trump is doing now. And it's a less sophisticated way of doing it. And he has very few people on his side. Whereas Hillary Clinton had a, you know, entire apparatus of people saying that this was Russian misinformation, the number of things, you know, the Facebook post, what a horseshit story. Cambridge Analytica, what a total horseshit story. All of that Mm -hmm. creates Mm -hmm. this environment. And what is the next step after creating that environment is saying we need to clamp down on speech. What started with Hillary Clinton trying to like assuage her hurt feelings and, and, you know, displace the blame to somewhere else ends up with people saying we need more of this, you know, and why, like, I don't think to your, to your point, your question, Camille, I don't think that Elon Musk will be saving democracy. I don't think that at all. I think it like radically overstates the importance of Twitter, but I think that it's a good thing to push back on it because this is another domino that falls because I am seeing people younger Mm -hmm. and younger who have just grown up with this and expect it. It is wild to them that you would ever allow somebody Mm -hmm. with noxious political views onto a platform. I like the, I like that because I get to know that they have noxious political views. Otherwise, you know, I don't know. And I just have to take the second or third hand when that could be subject to misinformation. (laughs) Right. So Yeah. yeah, I think that that thing that exists it exists out of a, a political campaign that now has you know is in the groundwater of American politics that the instinct is to prevent people from speaking because it also plays into that other thing that we've been talking about since the beginning of this podcast that was hilarious to us before but not so much now is that words are violence words put people in danger mm-hmm. constantly right we grew yeah, up in a time yeah, yeah. when we would laugh at people who said that video games and two live crew records like this is fucking <laughs> right wing <laughs> scare tactics pmrc bullshit me so and, yeah <laughs> me love you long time uh, i'm sorry but i think it's actually i have loved you for a long time yeah um, yeah yeah <laughs> but yeah, no, those are the people that were fucking with things in the past, right? And now, all of a sudden, <laughs> this is the default position of people in the mainstream media because these words can hurt, they're degrading, they're violence, they affect marginalized people, etc. I'll give you one final example, and I'm going to toss this back to you. I was listening to some woman who's a professor at... Mount Royal College in Canada. And she's been one of the few people mm-hmm. who have stood up against this story. We talked about it one time, long, a uh, long time ago in the podcast about these rural schools where uh, indigenous first peoples in Canada were sent. And then there was, you know, unmarked graves. And, and it turns out that they have not uncovered any graves, by the way, this has been, you know, totally, fake story. you know, Justin <laughs> Trudeau put the Canadian flag at half mask for five months because of this genocide um you know and she and she is amazing she's this amazing professor when this story happened an email and this relates to what i'm talking about email went out to staff and said you need to be there for our indigenous uh employees and scholars and academics 
who are going through a tough time with this right now. And we need to, to be there for them. And she objected and said, I don't even know if this thing is true. And now I'm like a social worker. But that is the dominant idea amongst intellectuals on university campuses is that, this, that these ideas, these historical events are so harmful that everybody has to shut down. Now imagine that writ large on Twitter. There's just harm everywhere and we have to stop the harm. It's wild and it's based on no science. It's based on lunacy and lunatic political ideologies and it should be stopped. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm happy that Elon Musk is trying to do something about it, but, you know. There was a, um, a, a tweet yesterday or the day before um, and I forget who uh, came up with it, so I'm sorry for cribbing it. Um, but it was in regards to baseball, which is perennially like, oh, my God, what are we going to do about baseball? And the audience always comes back to down. baseball. <laughs> blah, yeah. blah, blah. Prague and baseball. It does in this case. <laughs> but uh, there's, a, uh, there's an extension uh, to what we're talking about. A person uh, came up with a formulation that makes a lot of sense to me. If you are worried about the future of baseball, maybe the best thing that you could do right now is to go outside and play catch. <laughs> and there's something absolutely true about that. Um, if you were worried about the state of journalism, if you were worried about Twitter, here's a possibility. Go on Twitter and don't act like a raving asshole comparing whatever you don't like to the Holocaust. Uh, <laughs> uh, try to have a normal conversation with people with whom you disagree. Um, and if they don't get the hint about being uh, like having a normal conversation and they want to sputter with rage, the mute button is right there and you can wish them a happy life and etc. Like you can model your own behavior and your own experience and tailor it, make it a better Twitter or better yet, get the hell off Twitter. Um, people have rightly pointed out that it can easily suck you into this kind of algorithmic trolling battle. And that's no, that's not necessarily a healthy way to go through life. It's not exactly how I happen to use it. Uh, or if you think that, you know, uh, that we need to do something to save journalism, and this is deleterious to journalism, you could be like Jeff Bezos in this case. And, and Camille, I will uh, dispute a little bit your characterization that no one cared about Bezos uh, buying the Post. Donald Trump. That's true. There were some parties who were concerned. did yeah. mention this a couple of times. There were threats to sick antitrust and uh, regulatory uh, authorities. But if you really do care about journalism, where is journalism suffering the most? It's in uh, the newspapers are closing down right and left and shrinking and all of this stuff. You could be a rich person to buy a newspaper or tell everybody at the newspaper that their work sucks and try to start some other kind of journalistic organization. There's so many things you can do. You can go and play catch to invest your hopes and fears in a goddamn 16-year-old technology company that limits characters to 280 fucking characters a pop or uh, posts, whatever, language, the bridge, happen, email, sent, um, is a ridiculous way to go through life. It's just, it's just, a, it's just a fucking Matt, website. you realize, uh, as you know better than anyone, Matt, Matt, if you don't know, dear listeners, is uh, quite an amateur historian of uh, the media landscape in America and newspapers from years past. And as Matt well knows, and as uh, viewers of Citizen Kane know, it was very common for very rich people to put their money into newspapers, buy newspapers, buy influence, et cetera. The difference was, is that billionaire, that millionaire at the time, whatever it might be, would control the newspaper, right? control the content of the newspaper, control everything about the newspaper, mm -hmm. prevent people from get, having their 
their uh, voice in the newspaper. I mean, who was the guy that owned the Chicago Tribune? The McCormick, McCormick it, Colonel Robert yeah, McCormick, fake the, yeah, the fake Colonel who was a big FDR hater and turned that uh, newspaper into a big anti-New Deal newspaper. We're talking about somebody in the modern world that does that in Jeff Bezos, and which I think is a positive thing. He did a lot for the newspaper. He invested a lot. The, you know, the app is so much better than it was. Um, he's, you know, made subscriptions. Well, you know, you tie it to your big company, right? Nobody seems to object to this because they're all kind of lefty journalists that work at the, the Washington Post. But a lot of that revenue comes from tying it to people's um, Washington, uh, the Amazon accounts. Like I got my first six months because I signed up with Amazon and then it just started charging me $2 a month or whatever it is. So the difference being is that you're objecting now to the modern version of that in which a billionaire takes over a media company, which everybody can participate in. And his stated goal is to have more people participate in it. And that is right. the problem. What a wild world we live in. But I wanted to turn attention back to that Atlantic piece. I don't suggest we have a long conversation about this now, but I am interested in your perspectives on this. John Haidt was the author of this piece and we messaged with him. So it's very likely we'll have him on the podcast to discuss with us pretty soon. But John makes a, a broad argument about social media and its role in altering the populace. There is a relationship to Revolt of the Public, a book that we talked about a bunch. But John goes a bit further than that, um, or at least is more specific than that. And I think if I had to break it into parts here, it's he's making an argument that social media is addictive by design that it is contributing to a rise in distrust in institutions and one another, and that it's being exploited for emotional hot takes that are not really driving thoughtful engagement, but are generating tribal fights. Mm -hmm. They make the angry, nasty responses valuable. The lowest stuff becomes the the most important thing in the debate. There's a bunch of evidence that he marshals. And one thing I didn't mention that he talks about a lot, actually, is the effect that all of this stuff is having on kids in particular. And that's a, a real concern of his. Um, so I want to talk about that stuff with him at length. Um, but I'm wondering like, where, where you gentlemen are on this, because I know we kind of shared the piece, but we didn't talk about it much. And it relates to, to some of this broader conversation about Twitter and its role in, in the polity. I mean, a, a lot of how you just set it up would have uh, accurately described in its own way the advent or the proliferation of cable news, the proliferation mm -hmm. of AM talk radio. Um, the difference, one of the differences here is that it's a lot more accessible and interesting <clears throat> to teenage girls, which is the population that he is most uh, interested in and teenage uh, girls think, are not interested in cable news uh they are not uh, <laughs> the median average of a cable news viewer is around 67 huh. um and that that's not a that's not a pull out of my ass i was looking at that yesterday um it's just a dying um medium or an aging uh, medium and so what what gets the kids going and you know it's tiktok and these kind of things and I'm sensitive to CNN say the least. CNN Plus is so exciting. I think they have like <laughs> 5,000 active subscribers or something I mean, like that. We're going to have 40,000 more people listen to this episode <laughs> than we'll watch <laughs> CNN Plus in the next three weeks. That's crazy. <laughs> That's crazy. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm sympathetic to all of that, and I'm also kind of instinctively a little bit skeptical of broad claims about it. Um, I, you know, as a parent of a 13-year-old girl, and I see how... Uh, 
that generation of kids and girls in particular um, have come out of the pandemic. It's gruesome. It's really it, there are there's wreckage on the field. In fact, there's wreckage mm-hmm. that would, you know, make our Tradcons uh, friends uh, nod their head or, you know, point and say, see, we're right. You know, like uh, everyone has their own uh, specific like boutique gender. Um, the amount of eating disorders and suicidal ideation and just so many pathologies. And it's very hard to disentangle that from the pandemic and just what it's like to be in middle school at this rotten time. Um, and and it's also uh, important to realize that uh, in many ways, social media and online connectivity was a lifeline during that period of time. It was a way mm-hmm. when you were stuck indoors for 15 months to communicate with friends to express creativity in TikTok, which is all about like dancing and making little things, um, little uh, kind of mini movies almost. Um, so I'm not ready to consign the whole thing. And I, and again, I would say that one of the ways to take that possibility of pathology, which is definitely, it's ever present. I think about it now. I mean, I would recommend to those people listening who might have, I don't know, an 11 year old daughter, let's say, um, to uh, go ahead and delay as much as you can the iPhone and the Instagram, even though she already has an Instagram account. (laughs) Um, Like it's the there's there are incentives associated with that. But like it the to deal with it begins in uh, in the home and go outside and play catch. Like there are other things to do to get into that without. Um, necessarily invoking invoking the specter of like we need to do something about this thing. There's always going to be a this thing, mm-hmm. and uh, and I'm going to err on the side of skepticism um, to assert that it this thing is brand new. It's going to create things that we've never seen before. Um, it might be true. I'm open to the idea, and like I said, I've seen some of the wreckage. Um, but um, also this is a pattern of claims about new technology and kids that's been with us for a really long time. So um, John, who I'm uh, happy to talk to soon here, hopefully um, uh, has to be able to grapple with that to marshal extra evidence to be Mm -hmm. persuasive on breaking the pattern of kind of uh, uh, parental hysteria. Yeah, I I think I'm a little less skeptical than you, Matt, but I think we'll probably land in the same places that even if everything that John says is right, I'm not sure what the solution is. And I don't think that there's any interventionist solution um, for this. I mean, that you this the cat is out of the bag. I mean, it's just this is how we live our lives now, and it's not going to change. I mean, when Trump was talking about banning TikTok because he thought he could ban TikTok, um, there was <laughs> mass hysteria. I mean, there it was <laughs> it was amazing to watch. But if you see, I think the difference is, I mean, we were all told to go out and play catch and stop playing fucking video games. But even video games now, you are communicating with other humans and talking to them, like literally talking to them. Yeah. And all mm-hmm. of this stuff mm-hmm. now, sitting do. in front of computers, you're interacting with other people. And it's undeniable that this stuff is changing the way kids operate, the way Americans operate in general. I mean, you see these st- these studies about the number of people who identify as like queer, uh, that vague term, um, or even transgender or something like that. 
and it's you know one like age groups like one percent two percent you know three percent and you get down to people between like the ages of like 15 and 30 and it's like 25 percent some astonishing thing I, I tend to not believe that that is something that happened independent of the internet and independent yeah. of tiktok and things like that and i'm not even i i'm not like you know the tradcons hyperventilating about this i'm just saying it's an interesting development but even language changes so fast because of all this stuff it took us what two weeks to unquestioningly start using an acronym bipoc that is just absurd mm -hmm. and no one had ever heard mm -hmm. and was not something that was in you know 20 percent of households in the mouths of 20 percent of people and all of a sudden it ballooned to 80 percent. it just didn't exist and all of a sudden Right. All of this stuff is being pushed on the internet and there's all these social cues that you have to you have to adhere to and you know the signals that you're supposed to watch for and you know everyone posting of course black squares and all this stuff. That kind of stuff is it makes me think that the only thing the internet does which I think is one of the greatest inventions in human history. It is clearly top 5. I mean it is unbelievable how it's changed so many people's lives. Um, saved thousands of people's, hundreds of thousands of people's lives too. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Not necessarily, you know. I mean, people, we always talk about you know, girls being suicidal and everything, but it's it's also a machine for saving people and and helping people and promoting people, etc. It's helped our stupid it's helped careers, our stupid careers. Sure. Yeah, I mean, every aspect <laughs> of my career has existed because of the internet. Every every job I've had, yeah, every job I've had, with the exception of my first two jobs, one making omelets at Asbury Methodist Village, yeah. uh, where I used to wear a name tag that said Puffy. Yeah, yeah. Um, Puffy you, made you the won't best find omelets. Any evidence of this. All all of my Who's customers that? have are Puffy dead omelet. Now. Um, <laughs> Puffy got a good omelet. <laughs> um, oh, you flipped the omelet so good, Puffy. <laughs> That's not a euphemism. Is that, Actually, is that it Catherine is. Hepburn um, was there. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, hey, man, they all omelet. they all look alike. Um, uh, <laughs> also worked at a car dealership where I, I filed paperwork. And those those are the only two jobs I've had that were not specifically related to the advent of the. My internet. first internet job dates to 1997. It was an internet company in 1997. So I'm I'm all the way back. I mean, all the way back yeah. for some of my age. That's a lot of internet jobs. But I think the one thing is finish it off on this to say that, you know, I'm sure that John grapples with this. Um, I haven't read the piece, but I know I've heard him say this stuff before. I've heard versions of this argument. But what the internet is also doing, it is allowing humans to be humans, right? And this is the way we are. We are tribal. We are angry. We are vindictive. We do like trolling people. We do like, you know, wreaking revenge on people. Now we have a machine that makes all of that a lot easier. So what do we do to restrain those human instincts? Um, is there some reprogramming that we have to do? Do we have to shut it down? Do you have to be licensed? I mean, I remember that England was saying you have to have, this was about a year ago, a license that you would buy at a shop to look at pornography online. And it's like, guys, guys, it's not going to work. I got a, I got a, I got a VPN and a lot of time, and those lights are going yeah. down, and I don't need to go to the bodega yeah. to, get, to get access. But yeah, you can't stop this. Stuff. The yeah. so that's, that's the thing. Yeah, is that it's 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 as much of a, I mean, it's a, a chicken and egg thing. I don't. I think that so many of these internet companies are responding to the way humans are rather than creating human behavior. Yeah. yeah, I mean, there's yeah. a. I think there's an after all. It, it was you and me um, aspect to so much of mm -hmm. the mm -hmm. discourse that we're having about 
politics and technology companies in particular. It really is. I wanted to throw in one quick, uh, tiny little anecdote uh, just from our local public school. I heard this yesterday that a uh, uh, our friend who has, a, I think, maybe a nine-year-old who goes to our um, school that uh, my oldest went to and my youngest used to go to uh, apparently came home not that long ago in tears. It's like a third grader or second grader or something. In tears because she said, uh, "Mommy, uh, I don't know. Uh, I don't know what gender." <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! Oh I have a text. God. I have a text message a friend of mine in still. New York City public schools too, of his daughter and and he listens to his podcast, so he'll know I'm talking about him. His daughter and another girl, I think there were six, talking about what they were, and there was one term. I'll have to look it up. I will look it up and find it. There was one term I'd never heard of. It was like, I'm a something. And it was like some obscure, you know, either sexual or gender. Um, I, I can't remember what it was. I have to look it up. But it was something bizarre. And it would be bizarre if an 18-year-old said that to me. I'd be like, huh? But like a six or seven-year-old, I was like, this is just wild that this stuff is happening. Yeah. Everybody gets a flag. Yeah, it's weird. It's yeah. Weird. I don't think it's destructive in the way that other people do because kids don't remember what they learn when they're seven years old and they tend to be more responsive to what you teach them at home than what the shitty teachers in public schools do. So it's all is not lost. And uh, I don't think it's that big of a deal. And I'm on record saying this quite a bit on the on the on mm-hmm. the uh, Patreon, but I have a long argument about that, which I will not rehash. So anyway, well, it's all good until they start force feeding your seven year old um, hormones to delay their puberty. That's, that's the real <laughs> is, problem. Is that there happening? Going ahead. Which is, which is what they do in Brooklyn. Oh. Now. Is that's that what, what happened with Jesse? Isn't that right, Matt? <laughs> <laughs> we explained so much. Happens, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh God. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I am I'm, I'm I, unsurprisingly I think we agree on on the broad strokes of this as you said when the internet has done incredible things and I know that John would differentiate between the internet and social media and yeah yeah, yeah yeah um, but sure. I would I would go further and and I've only thought about this so much but my gut tells me that Twitter Twitter specifically is probably already a net good for the world. Um, and it could be better if we were up to the task of figuring out how to best leverage it for what it is. The problem is the people and fetishizing the tech is a bit, is a bit weird in a circumstance like this. And the analogy that comes to mind is the fact that traffic accidents kill a lot of people, not just in the United States, but around the world and cars are not the problem. One could speak to the fact that as a species, you know, it's unnatural for us to be moving so fast and to be um, lugging such heavy loads. Um, and this Not technology natural. is allowing <laughs> us to do things that we just shouldn't be able to do. It's, just, it's creating all sorts of disruptions. We need to regulate it. And I think it's true that at some point, autonomous vehicles might actually lower the number of fatal car accidents that happen. But even today, despite all of the bad things that are associated with automobiles, cars are still a net good. And I feel much the same way. Who's about creating Twitter. those autonomous vehicles, Camille? <laughs> <laughs> we won't have to Hitler. depend on Elon. Uh, some of the, the various yep. journalists criticizing him will be making, yeah. uh, will be making those cars. Cause we don't need, we don't need those people yeah. um, to do that. Well, yeah, because but it's, be- it's, it's hard. I mean, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't get myself very worked up um, just yet about Twitter. I, I keep hearing that, old Voltaire quote about how, you know, the multitude of books is making us stupid. We're always 
bemoaning the new technology, whether it's the Walkman or the printing press and the way it's going to destroy society or lay it low. I'm instinctually, perhaps dispositionally skeptical of the assertions, but I'm, I'm interested in, in probing this a bit further yeah. at some later date. Yeah, I mean, yeah, maybe a later date is, but, but it is the people who are actually the ones reporting on this stuff and reporting this alarmist stuff and the ones are, you know, f- furthering this discourse are the ones who are paid and their identity and their livelihood is based on, you know, hanging out in the worst precincts of Twitter. You know, there are people who use Twitter and just get recipes off of it and like news mm-hmm. stories from the BBC. Um, and that's still the majority, yeah. majority of people on Twitter do yes. not talk about. It's right. not it's not what you do on Twitter. And I assume that you do it, too, if you're listening to this podcast is not what most people do on Twitter. And most people have no idea what any of this stuff is, which is why it was so hilarious when that poll came out that uh, the number of uh, Hispanic people who use Latinx. And it was not only that, that they didn't use it. It's like no one had ever heard of it. They were like, dude, I am literally trying to feed my family. I have no fucking idea what you idiots are talking about on Twitter. But yeah, it's, it, it's time to come back to the real world sometimes. And it also allows journalists to make themselves far more important than they are. That we yep. control this tool. And who was the one that tweeted that today? It's like, it was, oh, it was it um, the guy from Foreign Policy maybe? like David Rothkopf or something who was like, you know, the, the, you know, Twitter is us. It is who we, we are Twitter and I'm going to walk. <laughs> it was that, I don't know if you saw that, but someone, okay. so it's, it's like, dude, nobody cares if you leave. Like literally nobody cares. Like no one will have any idea who you are. Nobody gives a shit what you, what you, you know, think about Elon Musk. And if you leave, you'll come back because your friends aren't going to leave. You know, they're not. I mean, what are you going to do? Like, you are literally going to be, you think you're so much more clever than these Trump people. And when it comes to this kind of technology stuff, you're not. And you think that, like, you're going to go make gab or, you know, truth or whatever. And it's going to fail like those ones did. Um, And, you know, look, to Elon's point, like, I don't think that one should keep all those MAGA apps off the app store. What was the one that they took? uh, Not gab. That's like the Nazi one. Um, what was the one that they took off the apps? Parlor, yeah, yeah. And, mm-hmm. and there's like you know a bunch of tech companies getting together to say this is no longer going to exist. This is an app right. that you're not because we control the gateway to your phone and the apps on your phone, and we will not allow this. Now you can get around that in some ways, but not really. Especially on the iPhone, you can't um, unless you like jailbreak your phone and t- download like the. I just love love the idea of like tech companies of relatively recent vintage who absolutely disrupted the media business are like banding together as a cartel to stop another like new upstart uh like is there a sense of irony here at all it's crazy like people that actually support this yeah. what i never knew about these yeah. people who are all probably fucking chomskyites in the 90s in college campuses talking about manufacturing consent and you know corporate media and corporations and blah 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 is that i didn't realize that their biggest problem was that the corporations they didn't think were on their side and the second they lined up with them <laughs> ideologically they're like this is fucking great yeah this is great yeah. shallow chomsky it's, i mean and, it's n- actually... and now there's not enough collusion yeah. <laughs> more collusion yeah. amongst the amongst the major exactly. corporations more collusion please yeah. this is 
this is exactly when the Greenwald Tybee access uh, become re- remind us of uh, of their use uh, as they analyze this because they are kind of media outcasts in this and they can they can they can smell the ridiculousness of it. I mean, Greenwald is as close as we have to a Chomskyite, right? In in like modern non ninety five year old Dumbledore uh, discourse and. You know, he looks at this and he's laughing as much as we are at the at the kind of instinctive um, revulsion at lifting content moderation. (laughs) It's 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 impossible not to laugh. People are losing their shit because there might be less content moderation. Even in the recent comments or something. There is (laughs) somebody responding to this. I saw on Twitter like, oh, my God, Glenn Greenwald, like is comparing uh, content moderation to censorship. I mean, what a bozo and blah blah blah. And it's like, yeah, I mean, he's I mean, kind of right. I mean, it's it's, it's what they're doing. It's, it's they're censorship. trying to yeah. prevent stories from <laughs> and people from being on a moderating. That's what it is. Mo- yeah. Like he made a joke. This is like a, a modern euphemism. But Matt, I want to throw it to you for one thing because you sent yeah. this to me yeah. and to Camille, and it dovetails quite nicely. Was this absolute disaster of a piece in the New York Times? about our uh, soon-to-be home uh, on Substack, which the premise of the piece... Mm. Tell us what the premise of the piece was, because it, it was basically that it was a... Um, everyone was leaving because they didn't feel safe Substack or something. Substack is going through growing, growing pain. So, I mean, obviously Substack is flogging a bunch of media because they're really excited about bringing the fifth mm-hmm. column over. I mean, they, they're wrapping mm-hmm. their entire yeah. PR campaign around Another us. white male. Uh, not as much as they probably should, <laughs> uh, no, because they're diversifying from newsletters into podcasts yeah. and other. But they're stuff not diversifying enough out. against a, you know it's all white people. That was in the piece. <laughs> That's the third paragraph, which of is the not piece true. By is the way. like uh, the the subhead of the piece um, uh, is that there's an exodus of writers from Substack. <laughs> there is in the article, and this is an article exodus. in the New York Times, a media. Article subhead says Exodus. In the article, there are five examples of people who have left, uh, including I think three, maybe or maybe even four, um, who left because, according to them, um, they were disturbed by the lack of content moderation uh, in Substack. Um, by which they mean uh, it was transphobic and the the white men and stuff like that. And so um, they went to uh, express their uh, upset at the lack of content moderation by going to Ghost, which has less content moderation. Yeah. And the uh, author of the piece was totally incurious about that dissonance. And this is a good piece by Jesse Single uh, about this on his own uh, But Matt, to, to be Substack. clear, the content moderation that they desire is not, you know, people making comments on their post it's saying Correct. that they don't want them to allow certain people to write on the platform yes um in this case maybe it is uh, uh allegedly a jesse single who's accused uh, wrongly of being transphobic maybe it's alex berenson or graham linehan who yeah. is, writes kind of crazy things about uh covid uh that's very controversial it could be whoever that they feel like uh, they're not doing what Twitter does. Um, and it's actually kind of interesting to the point about uh, just sort of in general talking about uh, whether Twitter is bad for society and whatnot. Um, people who kind of share that are our friends at Substack. I had an interview with Hamish McKenzie um, in a recent issue of Reason, and they 
uh, both in that interview and in their own kind of uh, public statements, they identify themselves as being kind of an anti-social media. They're like the solution to the problem of both social media and although they stress it to a lesser degree of kind of uh, conformity, woke conformity in the mainstream media as it's going through its own nervous breakdown. So it's kind of interesting the way they posit that. But the thing about this piece, it's in the New York Times. They said Exodus. They gave five examples, most of which didn't make sense. And then in mm -hmm. paragraph nine, they're like, oh, and by the way, they've gone from 50,000 people paying for subscriptions to 1 million in the last two years. Like, I'm sorry, <laughs> that's, we, the exit? That's, that's, Movement that the of movement shitty people. Job people? Yeah. <laughs> no. And like one of the people who left is like uh, Elizabeth Spires, who's uh, you know is a friend. Um, is like I, you know, I was I was getting a better job offers, and I went somewhere else. Like, yeah, yeah, you know, what? we we can leave if yeah. the from the moment that we start with Substack, um, part of their selling proposition is you can leave anytime yeah. you want. And here's all the information of your customers, and here's all your archives. Go, my friend, go, go, go. Yeah. Um, and uh, and that's kind of attractive because that you can't do that from Twitter. There also, there was you a can't quote keep all in your there posts. about, and I tweeted about this. And I responded to you, Matt, um, that they were mad. There was some person who was mad that uh, th number one that they that, that Substack wasn't free. And that was literally in the piece. They're like they take yeah, a commission. It's, it's, it's like, I'm like, this is a joke, right? This somehow made it past an editor. Yeah, they take they take a fee. Yeah, that's what happens. I mean, everybody, Patreon takes a fee. This other place, Ghost, takes a fee. Some of that fee is Stripe. Mm -hmm. the, pay, the You ever go into a bodega and it's like, you know, uh, $10 and up for credit card transactions? Because it costs you money to do a credit card transaction. You got to pay for that. And that's what they were complaining about. Then you add on the Stripe fees. And can you believe this? fucking patriarchy and i'm like it's just i mean you could go to capitalism route and say you hate capitalism or something but the patriarchy doesn't make sense in this uh the the white male thing you know it's like god you do realize did you do any reading did you see that you know someone like roxanne gay and i don't know what she writes anymore because she blocked me a long time ago uh, but I'm sure it's really dumb. Uh, <laughs> We're going to become friends again. We're going to become yeah, friends be, again. And, I'm already so, working and, on, on it. Substack. It'd be great. I'll have, we'll have her mm -hmm. on. Yeah. And she'll, be, she'll, she'll yeah, knock we'll, us out. We'll neighbors. wow us with her <laughs> amazing theories of whatever. Uh, I, don't, I really don't know anything about her and I don't care. But um, but yeah, that was the complaint. She's going to undermine undermine this budding friendship yeah. that I'm working on. Yeah, it's going to be here. great. Yeah, you guys have a lot in common. She'll like block you in real life. <laughs> she'll just like put a dude. That's my that's my put sister. A, put a piece of yeah, cardboard in front of your face while you walk by. <laughs> but, but the frame, the framing of the article was very much like you know Substack going through growing pains because of their lack of content moderation. That was the premise. It's like, yeah. nope, yeah. nope, not growing pains. Um, and uh, they have even more, slightly more content moderation than Ghost, which is supposed to be uh, eating their lunch on stuff. It's just, uh, it's amazing to me. I came back. Um, to America in 1998, started working for the online journalism review, speaking of internet jobs. And from the, I think one of the first three pieces that I wrote was called, Why Does Old Media Hate the New? <laughs> and it's like, I've been watching this pattern forever. Whenever there's a new thing, a new uh, website, a new category of website or whatever, you see these scare uh, stories. The first issue of God Help Us, Brill's content. Oh my God, Stephen that Brill, one, man. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, uh, Camille was still in short pants, but I remember he wrote uh, a piece the, in the uh, one, either the first or the second one about how uh, the secondhand smoke uh, idea was a scam. 
It's yeah, true. It kind of is, but <laughs> <it's> a, uh, <laughs> we'll talk about that on, on but, uh, Substack. But the uh, first canceled for it. Here we go. Here we the go. first piece in the first issue uh, came out uh, not long after the Lewinsky thing, which is what put Matt Drudge on the map. So Steve Brill does what you should do in the situation, which is write thirty-five thousand totally uh, incoherent and exhausting words uh, about it all, and like trying to. Um, wrestle with the journalistic values of it all in a way that if we went back and read it now, we'd be laughing at him. I was laughing at him in real time. Uh, but this has just been a constant thing throughout the years where um, it, it not just uh, are, is the writing laughably bad from a, 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 a absolute competitor, right? Like the New York Times diversified into the newsletter business out of fear of having uh, of losing staff who uh, can be monetizable who can realize that they are, are worth more individually. But how diverse bundle. is that diversification? The, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's an excellent question. the most question. important thing. By the way, uh, can you imagine this conversation? This is what I'm, I'm going to be that writer. I don't know who the writer is who wrote that Substack abomination, but I'm going to be that writer's editor. And then the writer comes in and says, I got a great idea for a piece. Mass exodus from Substack. You know, that big thing that people are talking about, that shiny new Substack. Mass exodus. I'm, I'm the editor, and I say, okay, okay so what are the, give me some numbers. Like, what are they, I, I, I talk to five people, and they're friends of mine. Um, I've worked with them, and they're mad. And, they're, <laughs> and it's kind of confused. Some of them don't really know why. Some of them weren't really writing anymore, and they went to a platform that has, like, even less moderation. But there are five of them. Yeah, but so what's the premise of the story? I, I, the premise is I have five friends, and they do not like the fact that Substack is not a censor. And this this is a, it's a story. It's a trend story. And like all New York Times trend stories, it's total bullshit. It's astonishing to me that actually, that actually made it to press um, because you would ask as an editor, the first thing about that was that there was one bit of data and it, and, it, and, it, and it proved the opposite of what they were saying. Very much so. The data said they're growing. Like exponential yeah. growth. Yes. Exponential. Pretty impressive. And there's probably, there's probably a number. And I'm guessing that number might even be public if you ask Substack sweetly enough. And they went into their office in San Francisco um, and, uh, and sat with them, and took a little picture. You could probably say, how many people signed up to be authors yeah. two years yeah. ago? And how many do you have now? And what's the trend line on that? There's probably an answer to that question. And I'm guessing, in fact, I will bet. I'll bet money and I will eat a garment of clothing. Mm -hmm that the number is higher today than it was six months This is ago. your Werner Herzog moment where you're going to eat a shoe. Um, the, the, one, here's a, here's a, the shoe is savage. It has no humanity yeah. to man. <laughs> it's not bad, actually. Um, here's That's the thing that you, you got to stop doing, by the way. If um, the Substack people, I, we've talked to them, had some pretty extensive conversations with them. I don't have any sense of what they believe in you know politics and I, I just don't, I don't know I've had conversations with them but they were not about that maybe some of the people over there would be forthcoming about that maybe they don't care about it but you have to stop this idea that if you don't want to throw people off a platform and you have somebody over there who is controversial and they are you know come from the right or if they're controversial and come from the left on controversial issues that does not make the organization a conservative organization. You are living in 2022. We are not. We are like sort of intellectually, I have stopped developing. I want it to be 2005 or 2010 or something in which there wasn't this mania that had overwhelmed everyone. 
And I don't think it's actually overwhelmed everyone. I think that to Jonathan Hyde's point, the the method of delivery here is, you know, very fast and people are on it all the time and they tweet hundreds of times a day and you're nervous about not adopting the word, not saying the thing that you should be saying, you should take a certain position on this. You know, the thing I was listening to about the Canadian native story, the journalist doing the interview was like, yeah, no, I, I thought this was true, but I was too afraid to say anything about it because journalists who were saying things like on social media were getting like widely, roundly, viciously attacked. And so, yeah, that's the world that we live in. Now. And if you, if you deviate from that in any way and you say, well, you know, I just think these people should be able to talk and, you know, and then you hire Roxanne Gay for a lot of money and you hire a lot of other people, by the way, who don't fit the, everyone talks about Greenwald and Taibbi, two people of the left, very much of the left, but they disagree with you on sort of the Hunter Biden laptop story. So they must be like right wingers or something. None of it really makes sense anymore, but don't make that category error that those people must be this because they allow that. Maybe they're just different than you and I. Well, not me, but maybe they're different than you. And like, you know, let a million thousand uh, ideas bloom to crib from Mao. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's ridiculous that people make these kind of assumptions. And also, like, who is being uh, squeezed out of existing media institutions for whatever reason uh, these days as those institutions go through nervous breakdowns or kind of constrict... Um, it's going to be people who are probably on average and who, you know, have audiences and demonstrated upside in business. There are going to be people who are going to have a mix of unorthodox views, probably. Yeah. I mean, they, they also hate the idea that somebody like Barry, um, our friend and multiple time guest on the fifth column, went over there and was a massive success. They hate that. And they know that if they yes. went over there, some fucking Present shithead tense. from Salon or something is going to go over there and start a Substack, and you know maybe a hundred people will pay for it, whereas Barry has you know what ten thousand, fifty thousand, who knows how many. But she creates a product that people want to read and listen to, and that makes these old guard people or the young version of the old guard, the young people who are trying to solidify the old guard in a in a new and different and especially noxious way, it drives them crazy. It's that simple. I mean, it really, that's why Substack pisses them off because Glenn Greenwald does well, Matt Taibbi does well, and Barry Weiss does well, all of whom identify as people of the left. You can quibble about whether you think that's true or not, but they did not fit into the what is now the acceptable vision of the left. And they went to Substack, and that's the kind of nest of quislings and traitors. So it must be taken down. Hmm. Well, speaking of people who've been driven crazy, um, I, I want to ask about the New York City subway shooting from earlier this mm -hmm. week. Uh, Tuesday Keep talking morning, about got a glass um, of I rose think, is when I... <laughs> yeah. yeah, you're going to need it. Um, Tuesday, Tuesday morning, um, I awoke to discover that there was this, this horrific event taking place. And, and Matt, I know this is hit somewhat close, for home, close to home for you, both like, geographically, um, but also because you're... you're family is somewhat directly impacted by this in the in the sense that your kids go to school in this area where this attack yeah, was taking district, place yeah. so you had to pay you were paying very close attention to this um for your own reasons but i think we all kind of watched in in horror um as this thing was unfolding and it, it attracted some national attention um and you know 
obviously we could talk about this in just a, a very personal way. It's to date, as, as I understand it, at the time that we're recording this, there have been no deaths uh, associated with this tragedy. There were 10 it people looks like... who were shot and there were other people who were injured and trampled because of the way that all of this transpired. But miraculously, no one was killed. Um, and this gentleman was taken into custody, not on the day. I think we're used to this happening. And then on the day of, you know, it ha- he gets caught or, you know, shot or something. Um Day a day or so later, um, there is this this odd interaction where he apparently calls law enforcement or something to that effect, and they they come in and arrest him. Um, but but what's interesting, I mean, from kind of the the fifth column standpoint, is just the way that the media coverage around this story unfolded and how it contrasts with kind of other events of this sort. Um, specifically what comes to mind for me is like the Atlanta um, shooting from last year uh, where very quickly before we knew anything about the shooter or the motives, we knew that we knew the racial demographic um, that many members, uh, many of the people who were victims of the shooting um, happened to share uh, the racial characteristic, the phenotypic traits anyways. Um, And even as the narrative started to get complicated. We were assured that it didn't really matter what the motives were. You know, this is a crime that is fundamentally about Asian hate. Um, in this particular context, things were a lot more complicated. Very early on, it seemed that this this wasn't a, a kind of cut and dry circumstance. Um, and then when you discovered that this guy. Uh, the early report said, you know, a man who's like five, five uh, African-American um, and uh, eventually he gets caught. And it turns out that he is some sort of black nationalist or at least is inclined in that direction and had some very curious racial beliefs. Um, and I should use air quotes because I, I don't think they're quite as curious as some of these publications make it out to be. And it seems that a lot of publications are either having trouble talking about this aspect of the case, um, the, the specific identity of the shooter, as well as the, the weird kind of constellations of constellation of motives that seem to be there. Um, and I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm confident there's a bunch of different questions that I could kind of posit there, but I feel like that's probably enough of a, of a setup for us to jive into this. There's a um, there's definitely a, a rush to what it all means uh, often with mass shooting events or to fit it into a thing. Um, the Atlanta shooting was part of uh, anti-Asian uh, hate crime that was allegedly on the on the increase. And I think at this point it might have increased. I don't really know what the thing was. But I mean, I got a, a, an email from our school, which I mentioned probably at the time. Um, you know, uh, from actually both of the schools my daughters went to, <coughs> um, you know, saying, you know, in this difficult time, it's just terrible to see these acts of anti-Asian violence, uh, these hate crimes, you know, it was just really like they had gone ahead and, and, you know, convicted the motive long before yeah. we knew much about yeah. what happened. Yeah. And there wasn't a correction that was issued by the school district. And it was like the superintendent. And ironically, this is the same district, District 15 in Brooklyn, where this shooting happened on 830 at rush hour at a very busy subway station in Sunset Park. 
which also is a very Asian neighborhood. It's Asian and uh, Latino, very heavy immigrant neighborhood, um, Chinese Americans especially, or just Chinese people um, who live in America. Um, there's oftentimes, we saw this from Jared Loeffner on Dylan Roof, uh, which, you know, that, that that lined up pretty quickly. He was trying to kill as many black people as possible. That was mm -hmm. what he was doing. Mm -hmm. um, but people want to... Uh, line up a motive, particularly if it fits into a thing that we've been talking about recently, um, and then start asking uh, the questions of, well, we really need to talk more or think more about this particular political pathology that um, uh, contrib from which this emanated. And that conversation happens sometimes, and it doesn't happen other times. One time it did not happen hardly at all. Um, that always uh, strikes me because it happened so closely to the Jared Loeffner shooting was the guy who opened fire at Republicans playing uh, in the congressional or practicing for the you remember Jared Loeffner's game. name do you remember his name not at all yeah, I don't know not at all a guy who worked on the Bernie Sanders yeah. campaign volunteered I think it was I don't think he was paid yeah. um, but like he but it was, was ideological and Jared uh, Loeffner's was not yes he was directly ideological he was hoping to shoot Republicans and he, he succeeded um, and this was part of where he came from and I mean, I remember at the time Bernie Sanders uh, was condemning that at the time of that shooting, but at the time mm -hmm. of Jared Loeffner, um, uh, he was uh, screaming about John McCain because McCain refused to, at that time, uh, sort of like take broader responsibility for Republican rhetoric that might have mm -hmm. influenced Jared Loeffner. Um, in cases like this that we have right now, I'm actually a little bit heartened. Um, Camille, you'd sent around uh, the New Yorker piece about this which is pretty much just kind of a TikTok of what happened and yeah. and talked about uh this guy's black nationalist ravings he might have uh might not have said it exactly in the same way that you would have put it um but it was it was pretty matter of fact of all of a lot of the insane uh background there are other problems with the article especially the way that it ended or talked about guns and that's what you can sort of expect from my point mm -hmm. of view but um but yeah and these I, I don't anticipate, even though there has been coverage of the guy himself and his crazy um, Internet videos, I don't anticipate that there's going to be a national conversation about the excesses of uh, or the pathologies of people who will get really mad at black women or, or uh, uh, was, was he mad at black women or white, whatever uh, race mixing, you know? Like, yes. Uh, yes. He's um, critical of race mixing. I yeah. like the article race that mixing. I saw that said he was raving about black women. It made him sound like he was racist against black people. It's like, well, no, he was <laughs> raving against black women for marrying <laughs> white people. <laughs> and that's not the, that's not the only time that that has happened um, uh, in uh, where there's been, Moynihan, what's happening in New Jersey? That's uh, yeah, there was an anti-Semitic crime spree. Uh, some, I think two people stabbed, uh, Hasidic Jews. And the guy who was arrested said that he did target Hasidic people because they were the devil. And that's kind of out of the Farrakhan playbook, right? I mean, the, the, the devilish Jew you can find in many, many Farrakhan sermons. I think the difference is, um, you know, the Loeffner thing uh, is, it, it was one of the ones I actually remember when it was, because it was right after my daughter was born. It was in 2011. And it was maybe March, April, something like that. And I was like, I really don't know if I want to be in this business anymore. I couldn't, I was so disgusted by these people twisting themselves into pretzels to try to make this 
about Sarah Palin, which, of course, you know, who I find loathsome in a million different ways, but not for this. And she, of course, was, you know, in a courtroom in New York just a couple of months ago <clears throat> going after the New York Times for blaming her for this. And it was it was even if you looked at the emails that were released and listened to the testimony, it was so strained a connection that she put a target on a map for a district that they thought should be flipped to Republicans or wanted to flip to Republicans. And that we had no evidence this guy had ever seen it, that no evidence that he was a Sarah Palin fan, nothing. And he was a true crazy person too. It was all like numerology and like just somebody who was on a different planet. And the yeah. desperate attempts for that to be politicized, I thought was one of the most disgusting things I'd seen in, in, in political life in a very long time because it was no one gave a shit about Gabby Giffords. They cared about making a point about this because it was around the time of, you know, and on, on the, on the heel, the other end of the Tea Party. And that was it. You know, these are the Tea Party people that were we talked about Mary Catherine, Catherine Ham uh, and her piece a long time ago about the violence of the Tea Party, which just didn't exist, but was reported widely. And she found like two examples and neither of them actually were even really violence at these town halls. But that was the, the sense at the time that, that we needed to fit this into the narrative that had already been constructed. And I think the way people are reacting to this now that are critical of the way the subway shooter stuff has been handling, handled is not to try to say, let's talk endlessly about black nationalism and Angela Davis that he had posted or you know, um, Elijah Muhammad, he posted a picture of Elijah Muhammad. It's more of like, why are you guys handling it this way and you all handle these other ones this way? It's much less about elevating this guy into an important, you know, ideological murderer than it is to say, you do handle this stuff differently. Jared Loeffner, there was no evidence, but you constructed it out of something you found on Facebook that was related to Arizona. You have no evidence that he had seen it, no evidence that he had ever talked about politics. And that, and you know, it was like, it, you know, he shot her in the same way that Mark David Chapman shot John Lennon. I mean, it was mm. the someone was talking to him. It wasn't about like I didn't like double fantasy. It was it was unrelated to his music, right? That was what was going on. And to see that stuff now is it doesn't happen in the, in, in in examples like this. And as Camille pointed out, there's I mean, so the, many the, examples of black nationalist thought. And, and one final thing is that if you were to go that length and say, okay. You did the Tea Party thing with Loeffner. There's no connection. Let's do a version of that with this guy where there is a connection. Do we have a conversation in which we say there is an environment now that has been created by this movement, the sort of extremes of the Black Lives Matter movement, the, and I'm specifying the extremes, not the sort of average person that goes out to march, mm -hmm. and the extremes of this ideology where you say, well, there cannot be racism uh, from a black person because they have no power which is one of the most ludicrous things in the world they have you know the guy in new jersey had the power to stab a hasidic person in the chest and the stomach today um because he didn't like jews i think there's not really power is not the denominator that i'm looking for here right but why are we should we not judging by their their own playbook a lot of these people when they talked about Lofner and some some others right um, Dylan Roof, um, you know, there was a Holocaust Museum shooter and there's a white guy in uh, D.C. 
do we not say that there is an environment now in which, you know, Asada taught me T-shirts, you know, somebody who killed mm-hmm. a cop, a New Jersey state policeman. Okay, his last name was Forrester or something. Or Angela Davis, also, you know, bit of a violent background if you if you look at the indictments and everything. Do we say that this person might be crazy, but being exposed and to these normalized views that are extreme has to stop, and that's why he did what he did? Do we want to do that? Because it happens all the time on the other side. I just don't know why we let's. I, I mean, I'm not saying it's something you should do. It's not what I am doing. But I think that to be intellectually honest here, people should be investigating that or, you know, putting that under the microscope and saying, well, is this something that is causing people to become violent if they're crazy? Because that was always the claim on video games, right? Yeah, video games don't make people go and shoot people. But if you're crazy and you're playing video games, it might tip you over the edge because you cannot blur that. That line is blurred between reality and fantasy and we allow people to get access to this violent material and they'll act it out. Not a lot of that happening here. I think one key, one key to especially the Loughner analysis, which is the most purely distilled version of, of that kind of uh, dot connecting, I think, Moynihan, is that is Paul Krugman's comment um, right afterwards, which was, something along the lines of in your heart, you knew this was going to happen, mm-hmm. right? Because the mm-hmm. previous 15 months had been filled or 18 months had been filled with breathless scare stories about the incipient violence lurking behind or in front of the tea party movement. And so people were primed to accept that. So um, there wasn't an equivalent necessarily of, you know, black nationalism or sort of extreme rhetoric leading up to this moment. Well, the Black Lives Matter protests were pretty violent times and people were killed. Right. Um, I I think maybe, so maybe it would be more like it would happen in some corners of ideological media that tend to be uh, critical. It happened on on Planet Andy No. Yeah, yeah, It wouldn't necessarily happen in the pages of uh, of the New York Times. Uh, I mean, I, I think that you should always... Be interested in any kind of coherent ideology of a mass killer because it's just interesting. Um, you should be able to identify when it's really incoherent. There's no through line. I mean, and, uh, you mm-hmm. know, the, the Kaczynski is Ted Kaczynski is a fascinating character. Of course, um, he had an ideology, and it's an interesting one, and it kind of overlaps with a lot of different people's um, worldviews, and it's insane. And his manifesto um, and was so being sold at the college bookstore. Um in the kind of independent lefty college bookstore in Amherst, Massachusetts. When I was there, they had a big stack of them. I've known more than one person to like, hey, you know what? He was really onto yeah. something. Um, but uh, uh, so it is interesting to to look at. Uh, and I don't think that you should get, I mean, I'm against the concept of incitement in general of that ideas cause incitement. Uh, but especially if the ideas overlap with your, with your own, like if someone is just a dyed in the wool you know, uh, Reason Magazine, the fifth column listener who goes into shooting spree, of course, that would never happen. Um, but if that were to happen and they had like a, 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 a long I'm, list. And those Boogaloo boys? I've met some, I've met oh, some of our friends. I can see it. A <laughs> couple in particular. <laughs> yeah. Um, I have to be able to shoot straight. I mean, of course, this guy didn't. I mean, the fact that no one did. There's a couple times I thought they were going to shoot me. You know? Well, our yeah. listeners? Yeah. Uh, no. Hey, I really like Camille the best. Uh, the problem I have with you, <laughs> I, like, oh I got to walk out of here backwards. I'm just getting Did in the way. Did you see Camille like, uh, uh, gave a heart and a trophy 
to someone saying, when you go in solo, Camille, uh, on Twitter. You see that oh, one? Yeah. yeah, she said something funny and nice. She said, I love the fifth column, but Camille, when are you going to start your own podcast? Mm-hmm. I only so, listen for yeah. you. I, Which, only I mean, that's not this funny just, or nice. Just, this just that's expresses wrong. the sentiments of many people, many people who yeah. love the fifth column. Unfunny. Why can't you accept their love and just appreciate that they love me more? And wrong. That's not love. Many people. I don't understand. That's not hard for me to accept. I don't know why that's hard for you to accept. Yeah. It's one of those things where you get to They love you, and you but love me more. I think it's many people. Um, yeah, know. You know, it happens a lot. I, I, I'll, say, I'll say this, <laughs> you know, know about the... True. <laughs> The black, the black nationalist, the black extremist. Um, I think that the phrase that actually was somewhat notorious back in 2017 was black identity extremist. People discovered that the FBI was paying special attention to black identity extremists, perhaps even ranked concern about the likelihood of violent acts of domestic terror being carried out by black identity extremists. They were paying more attention to this than Al-Qaeda. And in, in truth, if we were to actually pay attention to the New York metropolitan area, I don't know that they would be wrong to pay attention to one of those things versus the other since 2014. My suspicion is, and I don't know this for sure, but just back of the envelope, pulling from my memory, there've probably been more incidents of violent targeted attacks carried out in that region by people who have some relationship to kind of black nationalist movements who share the sensibilities of the the nation of islam um even this most recent attack the guy has a number of really bizarre seemingly strange and contradictory beliefs and when i've talked to people about it they say well I mean, he's talking about black people and he's calling them niggers and he's saying they deserve to be exterminated. What is he talking about here? It's a weird thing, but it, it in many respects does kind of line up with some of those black nationalist sentiments. And I think the issue here isn't so much that I think that it's appropriate for there to be a level of kind of hysterical overconcern that anyone who attends an NOI event is someone who should immediately come under suspicion because they're likely to be the next mass shooter. Um, But it is very interesting when there is a very conspicuous effort to ignore the fact that there is a a pattern while there is a similarly conspicuous pattern of presuming that a relationship exists. Like the kid in Atlanta, it, it comes out that there is this broader story about his shame because he'd been going to these spas, gratifying himself sexually and came from this very repressive kind of fundamentalist community. And that was his motive for carrying out the attack. And there was no national conversation about that aspect of what happened, about fundamentalism, about oh, the there were people who mental health stuff. It. Yeah. it said that that was not true. Either that was not true or it doesn't matter what his motives were. <laughs> what matters is the impact on the community. I can't imagine something similar happening here. In fact, it just seems like certain people are loath to acknowledge that anything like a pattern exists it's hard for me to ignore baton rouge dallas multiple times in new york city that that really heinous like bodega attack that took place in um new jersey Jersey was it like two or three years ago um yeah uh, another like similarly prolonged engagement with this heavily armed guy there's there's something going on there that's at least worth paying some attention to well you know I think there's one question. Just ask yourself one question, one single sentence. And if you're somebody who generally disagrees with what we've been saying about this issue, 
I want you to actually grapple with it and, and tell me that I'm wrong. Do you believe if the perpetrator of this was a slightly mentally defective white man who had a gas mask on and sort of then, of course, looks a bit militia-like in his uniform and, you know, his, his camo and his gas mask and goes onto a subway train and shoots multiple people and escapes. And then we find his videos in which he's talking about how much he hates race mixing. Do you think that this mm -hmm. story would hang around longer than it's going to hang around now? I just think it's undeniable. In, in one of the most heavily immigrant neighborhoods, the schools there, which are youngest, are selected to go to for pre-K. That would have been our subway stop if we had agreed to what we were assigned to. The school is 96% non-white. Yeah. So imagine a white guy going to that subway stop at 8.30 in the morning where there's three different lines yeah, converging, converging in uh, a pretty well-known Chinese and Latino neighborhood with a lot of premeditation and just really bad aim. Apparently. Yeah. Did he shoot anybody, any work. black people? I, I don't know. I mean, it, it wouldn't surprise me because he fucking threw out a smoke grenade I mean, and then started firing. Yeah, I'm so, not sure. He I mean, could, he could really see. Not... It was pretty weird, man. Like, like 29 hours of this, like the schools went on lockdown in our neighborhood for understandable reasons. It's not that far away. Um, and, then it's like, oh, okay, uh, lockdown lifted. Um, and granted, it's a big city, and who knows where he was, but like they didn't know where he was. The city, New York has a few cops <laughs> for for the and two broken the, cameras. That thirty that thirty hour period, every sub I rode the subway a lot during that period. Um, every subway stop had ten cops. It was just crawling with cops. I went outside at some point and thought, like, oh. I, are they catching him here? Because there was, I think, five cop cars on my little street and then a bunch of other on the big street that I'm close to. And just, like, it was filled with cops. The, how that guy squirted out of all of that is, is pretty amazing. I'm kind of I'm, I'm glad for a lot of reasons that they caught him in 30 hours eventually. But it would have been, like, another hour or two, the, it would have been pretty bad for the cops. I mean, I mean the two broken cameras. Cow. I mean, this is when people make these comparisons. They see cameras around. They say this is America's Stasi state, et cetera. The East German secret police, the Soviet secret police, prized competence over anything. And if you had a broken camera, you'd end up in the Lubyanka in, uh, in Moscow. We do not do that. So it's very hard to have a Stasi state when you have so many people working for the city and uh, working for the state and just suffering no punishment for being total incompetence. So, <laughs> in fairness, we guard. Uh, we're a little bit more totalitarian in Lower Manhattan, where Camille yeah. used to live. Hmm. Um, we got to protect the assets down there. But uh, in uh, Sunset Park, a uh, little they've little had a few less, terrorist uh, attacks down there in the day. First car bomb, yeah. car, so car bomb attack in America was down there. Is that right? On broad, uh, yeah, on Broad Street, and I think nineteen fifteen. Uh, anarchist group hmm. blew up, but you can still see the holes oh, yeah. in the wall. Oh, you mean you mean in the fire? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 That was yeah. I've, the first I've, I've been there, and I've put my put my hands inside the yeah, divots yeah, that yeah. are are very much still there. And it wasn't a car; it was a that wagon. Was a, that was a horse drawn. Yeah, yeah, yeah but it's always it referred to as the first car bomb in America. And I believe yeah. it was Italian. That's because Americans lie. Italian anarchists. Yeah. That was back in the day. It was always the Italians. <laughs> that That's the most yeah. fascinating. That's I'd say that's still not true. Yeah, yeah. No, I as. Somebody who's kind of Italian, I, I Italian American. Yeah. I do appreciate our contributions to America have been 
various forms of violence, <laughs> <laughs> some effective and some not so effective. Oh, God. This racism and all these stereotypes that happen totally to be true. true. Um, so we've been going for a little bit. Before we leave, though, uh, Finland, Sweden joining NATO. Maybe. 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 Russia kind of pissed off by this, yeah. suggesting that they will perhaps deploy some sort of strategic nuclear assets into the Baltics. What do you so gentlemen scary. make of this? Is this a big no, deal? Not I mean, a big deal? I mean, um, they already have... I mean, when they say in the Baltics, they're talking about Kaliningrad, which is this weird film mm-hmm. that is not connected to Russia, but is surrounded by by Latvia and Lithuania. And they already have kind of, you know, dual use stuff there that you could attach a nuclear warhead to um, being put in the most simple uh, way. So, yeah, it's nothing. There's nothing strange and new about that. And I, I, I think that, you know, they've responded and seen the way people cite nuclear war as a as a reason to not go in too hard on the russians it's not stopping anyone right now but that is the idea was that you know there they talked about nukes in the first week of the conflict they know what they're doing yeah this mm-hmm. is this exists and, for a reason and, and that's, I, that's it, about the only respect in which it seems like they know what they, they're yeah, doing yeah. though they, i mean it's it's going to be totally ineffective just as this war has been ineffective if there was any truth to it being uh, a way to kind of uh, put uh, some dividers in between NATO and the West. What is it? You just encouraged, convinced Finland and Sweden it. to join NATO, which is another a reminder that the way that NATO expands over the last 30 years is not because, um, you know, uh, Americans are sitting there going, how can we right. make Russia mad? Mm-hmm. No, it is Russia makes people so mad. They're like, how can we join so that we're not? Yeah, the gang, the gang yeah. comes to the neighborhood, smashes up your business, and then the other gang comes over and offers you protection. You'd be fucking yeah. stupid to not take the protection because you're all I mean, on your we own. Set it on the, and you need the protection. And that's we said and, and what, on, on what's, the last well, I mean, Patreon. Is, but like mm-hmm. the, uh, the Finnish president just said, Russia is not who we thought they were. They've demonstrated that they're different, and so I therefore we're going to change our yeah. policy. Um, you know, congratulations, Russia! You just unified NATO yeah. and reminded and, America that it's that it's about the uh, the will of independent countries to choose their own security arrangements, not some fucking master plan out of Washington to try to do fill in the blank nefarious thing. And, and to say to state it explicitly, I think what you're what you're getting at is that. There have been polling about <laughs> whether or not to join NATO in Finland for some time. And generally, this had not been a popular no. thing amongst the populace. And that has changed dramatically yes. in recent dramatically. months, um, which is, as I pointed out before, the first time, <laughs> what, do you, what do you do about that if you're the political leadership? Yeah, first time ever 50 percent, both yeah. in Finland and Sweden. Yeah. In Sweden, it's been an enormous ideological battle over the years. Um, it still existed when I was in Sweden at the time. There'd be, you know, the the kind of Atlanticists who wanted Sweden to be a part of NATO and more in tune with the West and the West security guarantees and less being this kind of independent, neutral uh, state. And there are mostly people on the left that jealously guarded that that idea of Sweden as an independent state 
And a lot of those people were sympathetic to Moscow too, by the way. There was a lot of people in the, the left party, um, the Venstapartiet in Sweden, the left party, used to be um, a Marxist-Leninist party, a communist party. In 1991, they changed their name. And uh, so there's a lot of people that were very sympathetic to that. And you're seeing that move because all of that old stuff from the Soviet Union and those sympathizers, they're just dying off and they just really have no purchase anymore. So now seeing these, seeing what's happening and you see these, the Bucha tra tragedies and the massacres there, which is why so many people on the other side of this are, are so invested in saying that it didn't happen, that it was fake, that it's been faked by the the Ukrainians or that it was perpetrated by the Ukrainians because every single one of these outrages pushes those countries further into the embrace of NATO. And so to prevent that, you don't stop killing civilians or raping women or bombing train stations of people trying to leave. You deny that it ever happened and you create this enormous propaganda campaign. It's not misinformation, this stupid fucking word. It's what has happened in every war in human history when there was some form of rapid communication was lying and propaganda. I mean, the Katyn Forest ma massacre was the anniversary of that was just last week in which 30,000 Polish officers were shot in the back of the head in this brutal fashion. And uh, Andrzej Wajda, the greatest Polish filmmaker of all time, did a fantastic movie about it. But it's one of the most brutal I mean, wiping out a kind of upper middle class of Poland in a matter of a week, you know, and that was denied by the Russians because the people who discovered those graves were Nazis. They came across those as they swept into Russia, and it was believed for a long time that the Nazis who were, you know, genocidal lunatics, it must have been them. They're clearly lying. And the Soviets got away with this for a very, very long time until the documents did come out and they acknowledged it in the Gorbachev era. But this is an old trick, you know? I mean, they lie about massacres. In those massacres, they lie about them because it is having the opposite effect on their, on their kind of supposed foreign policy goals, which is to keep NATO out of their backyard. It's going to come closer, and it deserves to come closer. It also, it also um, calls to light that, you know, the... Finland not being part of NATO at the outset or not being part of a, the Western security umbrella explicitly was originally an artifact of, look, it's post-World War II. Um, we've got to figure out what to do, including about so-called buffer states, um, you know, the, the, the eventual status of, of countries like Austria, like Finland, um, uh, it, just all close to that to that flank was always contested. And there was a lot of different. Um, sensibilities that you had to pay attention to, particularly after Finland fought so fiercely against the Soviet Union during World War II. Um, that just doesn't exist anymore um, in a couple of ways. One, you have the Baltics that are buffing a lot of that. Um, but also, Russia has revealed itself to be a real paper tiger uh, in this. They just lost their <laughs> their flagship ship in the in the uh, in the uh, what call it sea. Um, what does uh, Black Sea? Black sea yeah. Um, uh, come on, man. I, I don't know. It's Black Sea. Um, but uh, they they are not a very capable or threatening military. They got nukes. That's kind of it. Um, they are less. They're they're so unthreatening that Moldova, as mentioned in the previous podcast, is like, yeah, let's get the Russian. Uh, troops out of Transnistria right now. Like, they're feeling kind of bold. Actually, Moldova did a really crappy thing uh, this week. I think they cracked down on uh, um, 
people expressing any uh, pro Russia sentiment having to do with the, the war. They're going to lock them up as if they're a common like Germany or some anti free speech country. I don't think that's a very bright idea. Uh, but, uh, you know, Finland, do they really have a lot to fear from Russia right now? What can Russia do? You and you and what army are, are going to hurt them? It's it's not much. Um, but meanwhile, like you do want the you know, it's just the same thing that as has been uh, evidenced by both Libya and Ukraine. The lesson is always have nukes. Um, one lesson here is always have a security guarantee if you're anywhere near Russia. If you have any access to it, just get it um, so that the next time. Any American president makes the speech of not one inch of NATO territory. You are part of that. Um, uh, and I think that's going to be kind of a permanent thing going forward, at least until the day. And then I hope genuinely for the day when there is a security organization that the United States doesn't even need to be part of uh, because Europeans will handle it on their own, which they should have been doing a long time ago. And just to point out that the Europeans have been doing a lot of this on their own, some better than others, um, without too much American interference to the point that it's really annoyed a lot of Ukrainians. They've been pointing this out. Um, they are getting a lot of weapons and material, some new stuff that is uh, coming, uh, long-range artillery and some other things coming from the U.S. Uh, but, you know, the, the role of the United States has been one that has been a bit of an irritant to both the Poles and the Ukrainians. But if you back up from this and you look at the world through the lens of conspiracy, that everywhere America goes, it's trying to destabilize democratic governments or trying to prolong this this um, uh, battle to, I mean, it's not, I mean, th somebody wrote an email about this because I, I, I mentioned this in the, on the Patreon that the, the absurdity of, of the idea, of the statement that America is preventing a deal from happening. Like if, because they want bloodletting. Uh, and they want this to continue. I mean, I just I don't I don't even know where to start with something like that. But I'll just say that even if that were true, it doesn't matter if America wanted more bloodletting because the Ukrainians are doing it their way. The Ukrainians are doing it the way that they believe their people want, which is an 80 odd percent um, approval rating for this idea of not giving away any territory and they see what happens in these towns where Russians have been pushed out and the result of them. Um, a story today in the Telegraph that was uh, rumored and then confirmed by the Telegraph reporter who went to the funeral of a daughter of a woman and you know her, her husband, her ex-husband, uh, at their daughter's funeral who uh, refused to submit and they raped her and then shot her in the head right afterwards. And this has been... Um, you know, you can't go around saying everything's war propaganda. You just sound like a lunatic, right? You just sound like somebody who is desperate to prove a point rather than, look, there's been some bad bad stuff on the Ukrainian side. I've talked about it. Um, I talked about it the other day on the Patreon. Stuff that's hugely disappointing, but it's not even, doesn't even come close to what is happening from the invading army who is backing out and, you know, basically you know, the pacification of villages in Vietnam, setting them on fire and, you know, raping people and murdering them and tying them up in basements and shooting them in the back of the head. This will all come out later. I mean, it's coming out in drips and drabs now. If you choose not to believe any of it, it's not a great way of consuming news because there's a lot of people that are doing really good work there on the ground who are not ideologically disposed in this conflict one way or another. So it's just a nightmare. And I, I, I hate seeing it last another day.
There's a, a piece by Doug Bandow in the American Conservative from today, I believe. Uh, the headline on it is Washington will fight Russia to the last Ukrainian. Yeah. Michael, do you see any problems with that headline? Yeah. yeah, uh, yeah. Come two on. words that don't agree with one another in that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah. It, it, this um, imagination that, that Zelensky is is just a wind up puppet of the U.S. when in the past 24 hours, the presidents and the prime ministers of all the Baltic countries and Poland uh, have been in Kiev. They are scheming and they are arming and they are, I mean, those are the people that want this fight to go on because they want the Russian army defeated before they can get to their own borders. And that's a logical and rational thing to think, you know. It says most disturbing is the apparent failure of the allies to support what the Ukrainian people need most, peace. And he quotes a guy named Ted Snyder saying that next to starting a war, the most reprehensible act would be keeping one going when more people will die with little hope the outcome will improve. That's, but that's mm. what people um, said But when, I mean, when Kiev was going to fall in an afternoon and then it was a week and then it was a month and then they disappeared. I talked to a fighter on the ground today in Kiev um, who told me, I said, are you redeploying to the, to the Donbass, to the east? And he said, no, we're expecting that something is going to happen here again. And we have intelligence that suggests that it's going to happen here again. Um, and, you know, people, are, he said, people are getting a little too complacent here. They're, you know, cleaning up the streets and trying to open up shops. And he understands it. But, uh, but he's worried that, that this is just kind of a head fake in some ways to reroute mm. some people back there, but then to just level it from the sky. Because um, they can't, they can't do, even they the can't do house to house fighting very well, as we've seen. There's just a, a a common thread to commentary stretching um, the decades, the scores of years um, that analyzes these things through every lens except for the lens of the people on the ground who are fighting against astronomical odds. But what are those people saying, Matt? It, I mean, somebody like. Um you know, Doug Bandow, who has, you know, writes about foreign policy with the exact same conclusion on everything. I mean, it's, we know where he's going. We know what he thinks. Um, what does he say if he were to get a recording, for instance, which I know that one of these will probably exist, of President Zelensky excoriating those who have asked him to come to the table and concede X, Y, or Z? He started with a concession we will pursue a neutral path in the way that Switzerland does. It means that we have an army, but we're neutral and we will not pursue membership in NATO. And the Russians said, no, that's not what they're interested in. That's what people who are talking about it on Twitter are interested in because it makes it an easy story about the United States and how they have created the situation. You know, I mean, the John Mersheimer uh, video that Ukraine is the West fault, which is from three mm. or four years ago. It's yeah. 25 million views now. Yeah. I was watching my interview and with he... him the other day. Dear fucking God. I'm going to try to post some of it, but I was having a, there was a save it, save it for the uh, Substack. I, I will. Cause it's, it was a corrupt file and I'm trying to fix it. But, uh, but yeah, there was a really amazing exchange in which, um, I asked him if it was not the business of the people in those former, Soviet states to decide whether or not they wanted to join NATO. 
I said, do they have that right? And he said, no, they don't. They should not have that right. And he said, well, you know, <laughs> it was an amazing thing. He said, well, you know, the, bu- the bully the decides. decides. And, he's, and he said, you know, like, did, what would you say about Cuba and the Cuban Missile Crisis? Like, you know, we didn't say they had the right to decide. And I was like, you do realize that the Cuban people don't decide anything. That's a dictatorship. <laughs> the, the leadership decided that and they were terrified, too. That's not the same thing at all. And that's, you know, there's always these historical examples that don't quite line up. Um, but, yeah, they just have total contempt for for the Ukrainians and, and, and great glory and, in the Russia. And in fact, Cuba, 90 miles away, was in an alliance with the Soviet Union up until, what was it, December of 1991? Yeah, and the, the special period when the, the funds got <laughs> off, yeah. And then suddenly the period got super special yeah, yeah. on them when uh, they no longer could uh, rely on that. Now, there's, there's that. It, it actually kind of exposes um, one of the, the flaws of looking at the world through the lens of Washington all the time is that you just can't, you lack the imagination to see it from the perspective of other people. And so, you know, if if there is no, you know, if the peace talks aren't going well, it must be Washington's fault. Mm-hmm. That doesn't make sense, people. It just doesn't. Like it's, well, it's weird. There's there no is evidence self-determination among nations. It's not as if, I mean, they're trying to pull out these isolated quotes, but there's no evidence in these talks, which are pretty fucking top secret. You're not going to get anything from the Russian media about them. And it's been very few drips and drabs because Western journalists do not have great sources within the Ukrainian military. Um, so I don't know what it's based on. I mean, the, the idea that the United States could magically stop this is outrageous and wild. And I don't... To do that, we would have to override the will of Ukrainians. Yes. That's what pe- That's what the anti-interventionist line is basically suggesting it, that we finally act with like imperialistic intent and tell the ukrainians what to yeah. do only then will we be proving our anti-imperialist bona fides it doesn't make sense it, it just doesn't. it's funny because i was just listening to this absurd documentary on bbc world service about uh kwame and kruma um and it was a hilarious That's hilarious does. thing when they had some american academic on who obviously loves kwame and kruma and they were saying, well, what about his authoritarian turn when he wouldn't allow anyone to vote? And they banned all political parties. He's like, you know, this is very common, a very common thing. And he was just making an excuse for it, which, which was hilarious. But the entire premise of it is that America, you know, having some influence and some say in the internal affairs was the ultimate form of imperialism. It was, you know, trying to cut short the dreams of an African liberationist movement. Um, and now the, the very same people that would agree with that assessment are saying, why are you not more directly involved in the negotiations? You say, well, you're providing them weapons. It's like, no, well, they're an ally and they're asking for them and we're giving them to them because we don't like and seeing Estonia, people defenseless. And Estonia is providing way it's more amazing. weapons. Than it's we amazing. Are. Bless the Estonians. So. Yeah. <laughs> well, we should get out of here. <laughs> We do have some do? announcements coming in the uh, in the next few days. Yeah. Uh, exciting developments that you want to be aware yeah. of. I suspect some of that will make it to the Patreon first. Um, while there's still a Patreon, um, I imagine some of that will be announced to subscribers first yes. on the legacy hint, platform hint. where we still happen to you be. You want to retake um, it? You got to sign but, up, my friend. But... 
<laughs> but changes are coming soon. Um, and there will be uh, additional details about that in the very near future. But yeah, uh, I suspect we'll be recording together in person be. soon somewhere. There'll be drinks flowing and, and stages mounting and merriment drinks flowing. We've got maybe, lot. maybe so, maybe so, a lot of but there's always a lot of mounting recently. when we get oh, together. Yeah. It's very yeah. exciting. Very exciting. Can't wait to see all you ladies. Hot, hot, <laughs> steamy podcasting. Um, I want right. the MILFs coming to the city. <laughs> Did you get your right. shots? Bye. <laughs> Bye. Bye. We know of new methods of attack. The Trojan horse.